This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott. Today's podcast opens with a reading of The Beckoning Fair One, a novella by Oliver Onions, read by Julie Davis. After this story, Jesse, Julie Davis, and I discuss the story. The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions 1. The three or four two-let boards had stood within the low paling as long as the inhabitants of the little triangular square could remember, and if they had ever been vertical, it was a very long time ago. They now overhung the palings, each at its own angle, and resembled nothing so much as a row of wooden choppers, ever in the act of falling upon some passer-by, yet never cutting off a tenant for the old house from the stream of his fellows. Not that there was ever any great stream through the square. The stream passed a furlong and more away, beyond the intricacy of tenements and alleys and byways that had sprung up since the old house had been built, hemming it in completely, and probably the house itself was only suffered to stand pending the falling in of a lease or two, when doubtless a clearance would be made of the whole neighborhood. It was of bloomy old brick, and built into its walls were the crowns and clasped hands and other insignia of insurance companies long since defunct. The children of the secluded square had swung upon the low gate at the end of the entrance alley until little more than the solid top bar of it remained, and the alley itself ran past boarded basement windows on which tramps had chalked their cryptic marks. The path was washed and worn uneven by the spilling of water from the eaves of the encroaching next house, and cats and dogs had made the approach their own. The chances of a tenant did not seem such as to warrant the keeping of the two let boards in a state of legibility and repair, and as a matter of fact they were not so kept. For six months Oleron had passed the old place twice a day, or oftener. On his way from the lodgings to the room ten minutes' walk away, he had taken to work in, and for six months no hatchet-like notice-board had fallen across his path. This might have been due to the fact that he usually took the other side of the square, but he chanced one morning to take the side that ran past the broken gate and the rain-worn entrance alley, and to pause before one of the inclined boards— the board bore, besides the agent's name, the announcement, written apparently about the time of Oleron's own early youth, that the key was to be had at number six. Now Oleron was already paying, for his separate bedroom and workroom, more than an author who, without private means, habitually disregards his public, can afford. Andy was paying, in addition, a small rent for the storage of the greater part of his grandmother's furniture— Moreover, it invariably happened that the book he wished to read in bed was at his working quarters half a mile and more away, while the note or letter he had sudden need of during the day was as likely as not to be in the pocket of another coat hanging behind his bedroom door. And there were other inconveniences in having a divided domicile. Therefore Oleron, brought suddenly up by the hatchet-like notice-board, looked first down through some scanty privet bushes at the boarded basement windows, then up at the blank and grimy windows of the first floor, and so up to the second floor and the flat stone coping of the leads. He stood for a minute, thumbing his lean and shaven jaw. Then, with another glance at the board, he walked slowly across the square to number six. 
He knocked and waited for two or three minutes, but although the door stood open, received no answer. He was knocking again when a long-nosed man in shirt-sleeves appeared. "'I was asking a blessing on our food,' he said in severe explanation. Oleron asked if he might have the key of the old house, and the long-nosed man again withdrew. Oleron waited for another five minutes on the step. Then the man, appearing again and masticating some of the food of which he had spoken, announced that the key was lost. "'But you won't want it,' he said. "'The entrance door isn't closed, and a push will open any of the others. I'm an agent for it if you're thinking of taking it.' Oleron recrossed the square, descended the two steps at the broken gate, passed along the alley, and turned in at the old wide doorway. To the right— Immediately within the door, steps descended to the roomy cellars, and the staircase before him had a carved rail, and was broad and handsome and filthy. Oleron ascended it, avoiding contact with the rail and wall, and stopped at the first landing. A door facing him had been boarded up, but he pushed at that on his right hand, and an insecure bolt or staple yielded. He entered the empty first floor. He spent a quarter of an hour in the place, and then came out again. Without mounting higher, he descended and recrossed the square to the house of the man who had lost the key. "'Can you tell me how much the rent is?' he asked. The man mentioned a figure, the comparative lowness of which seemed accounted for by the character of the neighborhood and the abominable state of unrepair of the place. "'Would it be possible to rent a single floor?' The long-nosed man did not know." They might. Who are they? The man gave Oleron the name of a firm of lawyers in Lincoln's Inn. You might mention my name, Barrett, he added. Pressure of work prevented Oleron from going down to Lincoln's Inn that afternoon, but he went on the morrow, and was instantly offered the whole house as a purchase for fifty pounds down, the remainder of the purchase money to remain on mortgage. It took him half an hour to disabuse the lawyer's mind of the idea that he wished anything more of the place than to rent a single floor of it. This made certain hums and haws of a difference, and the lawyer was by no means certain that it lay within his power to do as Oleron suggested, but it was finally extracted from him that, provided the notice-boards were allowed to remain up— and that, provided it was agreed that in the event of the whole house letting, the arrangement should terminate automatically, without further notice, something might be done. That the old place should suddenly let over his head seemed to Oleron the slightest of risks to take, and he promised a decision within the week. On the morrow he visited the house again, went through it from top to bottom, and then went home to his lodgings to take a bath. He was immensely taken with that portion of the house he had already determined should be his own, scraped clean and repainted, and with that old furniture of Oleron's grandmother's, it ought to be entirely charming. He went to the storage warehouse, to refresh his memory of his half-forgotten belongings, and to take measurements, and thence he went to a decorator's. He was very busy with his regular work, and could have wished that the notice-board had caught his attention either a few months earlier or else later in the year, but the quickest way would be to suspend work entirely until after his removal. A fortnight later his first floor was painted throughout in a tender elderflower white. The paint was dry, and Oleron was in the middle of his installation. 
He was animated, delighted, and he rubbed his hands as he polished and made disposals of his grandmother's effects. The tall, lattice-paint china cupboard with its derby and mason and spode, the large folding Sheraton table, the long, low bookshelves. He had had two of them copied. The chairs, the Sheffield candlesticks, the riveted rose bowls. These things he set against his newly painted elder white walls, walls of wood paneled in the happiest proportions, and molded and coffered to the lowest-seated window recesses in a mood of gaiety and rest that the builders of rooms no longer know. The ceilings were lofty and faintly painted with an old pattern of stars. Even the tapering moldings of his iron fireplace were as delicately designed as jewelry, and Oleron walked about rubbing his hands, frequently stopping for the mere pleasure of the glimpses from white room to white room. "'Charming, charming,' he said to himself. "'I wonder what Elsie Bengo will think of this.' He bought a bolt and a Yale lock for his door, and shut off his quarters from the rest of the house. If he now wanted to read in bed, his book could be had for stepping into the next room. All the time he thought how exceedingly lucky he was to get the place.' He put up a hat-rack in the little square hall, and hung up his hats and caps and coats, and passers through the small triangular square late at night, looking up over the little serried row of wooden to-let hatchets, could see the light within Oleron's red blinds, or else the sudden darkening of one blind and the illumination of another, as Oleron, candlestick in hand, passed from room to room, making final settlings of his furniture or preparing to resume the work that his removal had interrupted. 2. As far as the chief business of his life, his writing, was concerned, Paul Oleron treated the world a good deal better than he was treated by it, but he seldom took the trouble to strike a balance or to compute how far, at forty-four years of age, he was behind his points on the handicap. To have done so wouldn't have altered matters, and it might have depressed Oleron. He had chosen his path, and was committed to it beyond possibility of withdrawal. Perhaps he had chosen it in the days when he had been easily swayed by something a little disinterested, a little generous, a little noble, and had he ever thought of questioning himself, he would still have held to it that a life without nobility and generosity and disinterestedness was no life for him. Only quite recently— and rarely, had he even vaguely suspected that there was more in it than this. But it was no good anticipating the day when, he supposed, he would reach that maximum point of his powers beyond which he must inevitably decline, and be left face to face with the question whether it would not have profited him better to have ruled his life by less exigent ideals. In the meantime, his removal into the old house with the insurance marks built into its brick merely interrupted Romilly Bishop at the fifteenth chapter. As this tall man with the lean ascetic face moved about his new abode, arranging, changing, altering, hardly yet into his working stride again, he gave the impression of almost spinster-like precision and nicety. For twenty years past, in a score of lodgings, garrets, flats, and rooms, furnished and unfurnished, he had been accustomed to do many things for himself, and he had discovered that it saves time and temper to be methodical. He had arranged with the wife of the long-nosed Barrett, a stout Welsh woman with a falsetto voice, 
their Marinethshire accent of which long residents in London had not perceptibly modified, to come across the square each morning to prepare his breakfast, and also to turn the place out on Saturday mornings, and for the rest he even welcomed a little housework as a relaxation from the strain of writing. His kitchen, together with the adjoining strip of an apartment into which a modern bath had been fitted, overlooked the alley at the side of the house, and at one end of it was a large closet with a door and a square sliding hatch in the upper part of the door. This had been a powder closet, and through the hatch the elaborately dressed head had been thrust to receive the click and puff of the powder pistol. Oleron puzzled a little over this closet. Then, as its use occurred to him, he smiled faintly, a little moved. He knew not by what. He would have to put it to a very different purpose from its original one. It would probably have to serve as his larder. It was in this closet that he made a discovery. The back of it was shelved, and rummaging on an upper shelf that ran deeply into the wall, Oleron found a couple of mushroom-shaped old wooden wig stands. He did not know how they had come to be there. Doubtless the painters had turned them up somewhere or the other, and put them there. But his five rooms as a whole were short of cupboard and closet room, and it was only by the exercise of some ingenuity that he was able to find places for the bestowal of his household linen, his boxes, and his seldom-used, but not to be destroyed, accumulations of papers. It was in early spring that Oleron entered on his tenancy, and he was anxious to have Romilly ready for publication in the coming autumn. Nevertheless, he did not intend to force its production. Should it demand longer in the doing, so much the worse. He realized its importance, its crucial importance, in his artistic development, and it must have its own length and time. In the workroom he had recently left, he had been making excellent progress. Romilly had begun, as the saying is, to speak and act of herself, and he did not doubt she would continue to do so the moment the distraction of his removal was over. This distraction was almost over. He told himself it was time he pulled himself together again, and on a March morning he went out, returned again with two great bunches of yellow daffodils, placed one bunch on his mantelpiece between the Sheffield sticks and the other on the table before him, and took out the half-completed manuscript of Romilly Bishop. But before beginning work he went to a small rosewood cabinet, and took from a drawer his checkbook and passbook. He totted them up, and his monk-like face grew thoughtful. His installation had cost him more than he had intended it should, and his balance was rather less than fifty pounds, with no immediate prospect of more. Hmm, I'd forgotten rugs and chintz curtains and so forth mounted up so, said Oleron, but it would have been a pity to spoil the place for the want of ten pounds or so. Well, Romilly simply must be out for the autumn, that's all. So here goes. He drew his papers toward him but he worked badly. Or, rather, he did not work at all. The square outside had its own noises, frequent and new, and Oleron could only hope he would speedily become accustomed to these. First came the hawkers, with their carts and cries. At midday the children, returning from school, trooped into the square and swung on Oleron's gate, and when the children had departed again for afternoon school, an itinerant musician with a mandolin posted himself beneath Oleron's window and began to strum. This was a not unpleasant distraction, and Oleron pushing up his window threw the man a penny. Then he returned to his table again. But it was no good. 
He came to himself at long intervals to find he had been looking about his room and wondering how it had been formerly furnished, and whether a settee and buttercup or petunia satin had stood underneath the farther window, whether from the center molding of the light lofty ceiling had depended a glimmering crystal chandelier, or where the timbre frame or the piquet table had stood. No, it was no good. He had far better be frankly doing nothing than getting fruitlessly tired, and he decided he would take a walk, but chancing to sit down for a moment, dozed in his chair instead. "'This won't do,' he yawned when he awoke at half-past four in the afternoon. "'I must do better than this to-morrow.' And he felt so deliciously lazy that for some minutes he even contemplated the breach of an appointment he had for the evening. The next morning he sat down to work without even permitting himself to answer one of his three letters— two of them tradesmen's accounts, the third a note from Miss Bengo, forwarded from his old address. It was a jolly day of white and blue, with a gay noisy wind and a subtle turn in the color of growing things, and over and over again, once or twice a minute, his room became suddenly light and then subdued again, as the shining white clouds rolled northeastwards over the square. The soft, fitful illumination was reflected in the polished surface of the table, and even in the foot-worn old floor, and the morning noises had begun again. Oleron made a pattern of dots on the paper before him, and then broke off to move the jar of daffodils exactly opposite the center of a creamy panel. Then he wrote a sentence that ran continuously for a couple of lines, after which it broke into notes and jottings. For a time he succeeded in persuading himself that in making these memoranda he was really working. Then he rose and began to pace his room. As he did so, he was struck by an idea. It was that the place might possibly be a little better for a more positive color. It was perhaps a thought too pale, mild and sweet as a kind old face, but a little devitalized, even wan. "'Yes, decidedly it would bear a robuster note, "'more and richer flowers, "'and possibly some warm and gay stuff for cushions for the window seats. "'Of course I really can't afford it,' he muttered as he went for a two-foot "'and began to measure the width of the window recesses. "'In stooping to measure a recess, "'his attitude suddenly changed to one of interest and attention. "'Presently he rose again, rubbing his hands with gentle glee.' Oh ho, oh ho, he said. These look to me very much like window boxes nailed up. We must look into this. Yes, those are boxes, or I'm... Oh ho, this is an adventure. On that wall of his sitting-room there were two windows. The third was in another corner. And, beyond the open bedroom door, on the same wall, was another. The seats of all had been painted, repainted, and painted again, and Oleron's investigating finger had barely detected the old nail-heads behind the paint. Under the ledge over which he stooped, an old keyhole had also been puttied up. Oleron took out his penknife. He worked carefully for five minutes, and then went into the kitchen for a hammer and chisel. Driving the chisel cautiously under the seat, he started the whole lid slightly. Again, using the penknife, he cut along the hinged edge and outward along the ends, and then he fetched a wedge and a wooden mallet. "'Now for our little mystery,' he said. The sound of the mallet on the wedge seemed, in that sweet and pale apartment, somehow a little brutal. 
nay, even shocking. The paneling rang and rattled and vibrated to the blows like a sounding board. The whole house seemed to echo. From the roomy cellarage to the garrets above, a flock of echoes seemed to awake, and the sound got a little on Oleron's nerves. All at once he paused, fetched a duster, and muffled the mallet. When the edge was sufficiently raised, he put his fingers under it and lifted. The paint flaked and starred a little. The rusty old nails squeaked and grunted, and the lid came up, laying open the box beneath. Oleron looked into it. Save for a couple of inches of scurf and mold and old cobwebs, it was empty. <laughs> no treasure there, said Oleron, a little amused that he should have fancied there might have been. Romilly will still have to be out by the autumn. Let's have a look in the others. He turned to the second window. The raising of the two remaining seats occupied him until well into the afternoon. That of the bedroom, like the first, was empty, but from the second seat of his sitting-room he drew out something yielding and folded and furred over an inch thick with dust. He carried the object into the kitchen, and having swept it over a bucket, took a duster to it. It was some sort of a large bag of an ancient frieze-like material, and when unfolded it occupied the greater part of the small kitchen floor. In shape it was an irregular, a very irregular, triangle, and it had a couple of wide flaps, with the remains of straps and buckles. The patch that had been uppermost in the folding was of a faded yellowish-brown, but the rest of it was of shades of crimson that varied according to the exposure of the parts of it. Now, whatever can that have been? Oleron mused as he stood surveying it. I give it up. Whatever it is, it's settled my work for today, I'm afraid. He folded the object up carelessly and thrust it into a corner of the kitchen. Then, taking pans and brushes and an old knife, he returned to the sitting-room and began to scrape and to wash and to line with paper his newly discovered receptacles. When he had finished, he put his spare boots and books and papers into them, and he closed the lids again, amused with his little adventure but also a little anxious for the hour to come when he should settle fairly down to his work again. 3. It piqued Oleron a little that his friend Miss Benko should dismiss with a glance the place he himself had found so singularly winning. Indeed, she scarcely lifted her eyes to it. But then she had always been more or less like that, a little indifferent to the graces of life, careless of appearances, and perhaps a shade more herself when she ate biscuits from a paper bag than when she dined with a greater observance of the conveniences. She was an unattached journalist of thirty-four, large, showy, fair as butter, pink as a dog-rose, reminding one of a florist's picked specimen bloom, and given to sudden and ample movements and moist and explosive utterances. She pulled a better living out of the pool— as she expressed it, than Oleron did, and by cunningly disguised puffs of drapers and haberdashers she pulled also the greater part of her very varied wardrobe. She left small whirlwinds of air behind her when she moved, in which her veils and scarves fluttered and spun. Oleron heard the flurry of her skirts on his staircase, and her single loud knock at his door when he had been a month in his new abode. Her garments brought in the outer air, and she flung a bundle of ladies' journals down on a chair. "'Don't knock off for me,' 
she said across a mouthful of large-headed hatpins as she removed her hat and veil. I didn't know whether you were straight yet, so I've brought up some sandwiches for lunch. You've got coffee, I suppose. No, don't get up. I'll find the kitchen. Oh, that's all right. I'll clear these things away. To tell the truth, I'm rather glad to be interrupted, said Oleron. He gathered his work together and put it away. She was already in the kitchen. He heard the running of water into the kettle. He joined her, and ten minutes later followed her back to the sitting-room with the coffee and sandwiches on a tray. They sat down with the tray on a small table between them. "'What do you think of the new place?' Oleron asked as she poured out coffee. "'Hmm. Anybody'd think you were going to get married, Paul?' He laughed. "'Oh, no, but it's an improvement on some of them, isn't it?' "'Is it?' I suppose it is. I don't know. I liked the last place, in spite of the black ceiling and no water tap. How's Romilly? Oleron thumbed his chin. Hmm, I'm rather ashamed to tell you. The fact is, I've not got on very well with it. But it will be all right on the night, as you used to say. Stuck? Rather stuck. Got any of it you care to read to me? Oleron had long been in the habit of reading portions of his work to Miss Bengo occasionally. Her comments were always quick and practical, sometimes directly useful, sometimes indirectly suggestive. She, in return for his confidence, always kept all mention of her own work sedulously from him. His, she said, was real work. Hers merely filled space, not always even grammatically. I'm afraid there isn't. Oleron replied, still meditatively dry-shaving his chin. Then he added with a little burst of candor, "'The fact is, Elsie, I've not written—not actually written very much more of it—any more of it, in fact. But, of course, that doesn't mean I haven't progressed. I've progressed in one sense rather alarmingly. I'm now thinking of reconstructing the whole thing.' Miss Bengo gave a gasp. "'Reconstructing?' "'Making Romilly herself a different type of woman. "'Somehow I've begun to feel that I'm not getting the most out of her. "'As she stands, I've certainly lost interest in her to some extent. "'But, but,' Miss Bengo protested, "'you had her so real, so living, Paul.' "'Oleron smiled faintly. "'He had been quite prepared for Miss Bengo's disapproval. "'He wasn't surprised that she liked Romilly as she at present existed. "'She would.' Whether she realized it or not, there was much of herself in his fictitious creation. Naturally, Romilly would seem real, living to her. "'But are you really serious, Paul?' Miss Bengo asked presently with a round-eyed stare. "'Quite serious.' "'You're really going to scrap those fifteen chapters?' "'I didn't exactly say that.' "'That fine, rich love scene?' "'I should do it only reluctantly, and for the sake of something I thought better.' "'And that beautiful, beautiful description of Romilly on the shore.' "'It wouldn't necessarily be wasted,' he said a little uneasily. But Miss Bengo made a large and windy gesture, and then let him have it. "'Really, you are too trying,' she broke out. "'I do wish sometimes you'd remember you're human and live in a world. "'You know, I'd be the last one to wish you to lower your standard one inch.' "'but it wouldn't be lowering it to bring it within human comprehension. "'Oh, you're sometimes altogether too godlike. "'Why, it would be a wicked criminal waste of your powers "'to destroy those fifteen chapters. "'Look at it reasonably now. "'You've been working for nearly twenty years. "'You've now got what you've been working for almost within your grasp. 
Your affairs are at a most critical stage. Oh, don't tell me. I know you're about at the end of your money. And here you are deliberately proposing to withdraw a thing that will probably make your name, and to substitute for it something that ten to one nobody on earth will ever want to read, and small blame to them. Really, you try my patience. Oleron had shaken his head slowly as she talked. It was an old story between them. The noisy, able, practical journalist was an admirable friend, up to a certain point. Beyond that, well, each of us knows that point beyond which we stand alone. Elsie Bengo sometimes said that had she but one-tenth of Oleron's genius, there were few things she could not have done, thus making that genius a quantitatively divisible thing, a sort of ingredient, to be added to or subtracted from in the admixture of his work that it was a qualitative thing, essential, indivisible, informing, past her comprehension. Their spirits parted at that point. Oleron knew it. She did not appear to know it. "'Yes, yes, yes,' he said a little wearily, by and by. "'Practically you're quite right, entirely right, and I haven't a word to say. If I could only turn Romilly over to you, you'd make an enormous success of her.' "'But that can't be, and I, for my part, am seriously doubting whether she's worth my while. "'You know what that means.' "'What does it mean?' she demanded bluntly. "'Well,' he said, smiling wanly, "'what does it mean when you're convinced a thing isn't worth doing? "'You simply don't do it.' "'Miss Bengo's eyes swept the ceiling for assistance against this impossible man. "'What utter rubbish!' she broke out at last." "'Why, when I saw you last, you were simply oozing Romilly. "'You were turning her off at the rate of four chapters a week. "'If you hadn't moved, you'd have had her three parts done by now. "'What on earth possessed you to move right in the middle of your most important work?' "'Oleron tried to put her off with a recital of inconveniences, but she wouldn't have it. "'Perhaps in her heart she partly suspected the reason. "'He was simply mortally weary of the narrow circumstances of his life.' He had had twenty years of it, twenty years of garrets and roof chambers and dingy flats and shabby lodgings, and he was tired of dinginess and shabbiness. The reward was as far off as ever, or, if it was not, he no longer cared as once he would have cared to put out his hand and take it. It is all very well to tell a man who is at the point of exhaustion that only another effort is required of him. If he cannot make it, he is as far off as ever. Anyway... Oleron summed up. I'm happier here than I've been for a long time. That's some sort of a justification. And doing no work, said Miss Bingo pointedly. At that, a trifling petulance that had been gathering in Oleron came to a head. And why should I do nothing but work? He demanded. How much happier am I for it? I don't say I don't love my work when it's done, but I hate doing it. Sometimes it's an intolerable burden that I simply long to be rid of. Once in many weeks it has a moment, one moment, of glow and thrill for me. I remember the days when it was all glow and thrill. And now I'm forty-four, and it's becoming drudgery. Nobody wants it. I'm ceasing to want it myself. And if any ordinary, sensible man were to ask me whether I didn't think I was a fool to go on, I think I should agree that I was." Miss Bengo's comely pink face was serious. But you knew all that many, many years ago, Paul, and still you chose it, she said in a low voice. Well, 
"'And how should I have known?' he demanded. "'I didn't know. I was told so. "'My heart, if you like, told me so, and I thought I knew. "'Youth always thinks it knows. "'Then one day it discovers that it is nearly fifty. Forty-four, Paul. Forty-four, then. "'And it finds that the glamour thing isn't in front but behind. "'Yes, I knew and chose, if that's knowing and choosing. "'But it's a costly choice we're called on to make when we're young.' Miss Bengo's eyes were on the floor. Without moving them, she said, "'You're not regretting it, Paul?' "'Am I not?' he took her up. "'Upon my word, I've lately thought I am. What do I get in return for it all?' "'You know what you get,' she replied. He might have known from her tone what else he could have had for the holding up of a finger. "'Herself.' She knew, but could not tell him, that he could have done no better thing for himself. Had he, any time these ten years, asked her to marry him, she would have replied quietly, "'Very well. When?' He had never thought of it. "'Yours is the real work,' she continued quietly. "'Without you we jackals couldn't exist. You, and if you like you, hold everything upon your shoulders.' For a moment there was a silence. Then it occurred to Oleron that this was common, vulgar grumbling. It was not his habit. Suddenly he rose and began to stack cups and plates on the tray. <laughs> "'Sorry you catch me like this, Elsie,' he said with a little laugh. "'No, I'll take them out. Then we'll go for a walk, if you like.' He carried out the tray, and then began to show Miss Bingo around his flat. She made few comments. In the kitchen she asked what an old faded square of reddish frieze was that Mrs. Barrett used as a cushion for her wooden chair. "'That I should be glad if you could tell me what it is,' Oleron replied as he unfolded the bag and related the story of its finding in the window seat. "'I think I know what it is,' said Miss Bengo. "'It's been used to wrap up a harp before putting it into its case.' "'By Jove, that's probably just what it was,' said Oleron. I could make neither head nor tail of it. They finished the tour of the flat and returned to the sitting-room. And who lives in the rest of the house? Miss Bengo asked. I dare say a tramp sleeps in the cellar occasionally. Nobody else. Hm. Well, I'll tell you what I think about it if you like. I should like. You'll never work here. Oh, said Oleron quickly. Why not? You'll never finish Romilly here. "'Why, I don't know, but you won't. I know it. You'll have to leave before you get on with that book.' He mused for a moment, and then said, "'Isn't that a little prejudiced, Elsie?' "'Perfectly ridiculous. As an argument, it hasn't a leg to stand on. But there it is,' she replied, her mouth once more full of the large-headed hat-pins. Oleron was reaching down his hat and coat. He laughed. "'I can only hope you're entirely wrong,' he said, "'for I shall be in a serious mess if Romilly isn't out in the autumn.'" 4. As Oleron sat by his fire that evening, pondering Miss Bengo's prognostication that difficulties awaited him in his work, he came to the conclusion that it would have been far better had she kept her beliefs to herself. No man does a thing better for having his confidence damped at the outset, and to speak of difficulties is, in a sense, to make them. Speech itself becomes a deterrent act. 
to which other discouragements accrete, until the very act of which warning is given is as likely as not to come to pass. He heartily confounded her. An influence hostile to the completion of Romilly had been born. And in some illogical, dogmatic way women seemed to have, she had attached to this antagonistic influence to his new abode. Was there ever anything so absurd? You'll never finish Romilly here. Why not? Was this her idea of the luxury that saps the springs of action and brings a man down to indolence and dropping out of the race? The place was well enough. It was entirely charming for that matter, but it was not so demoralizing as all that. No, Elsie had missed the mark that time. He moved his chair to look round the room that smiled, positively smiled in the firelight. He, too, smiled, as if pity was to be entertained for a maligned apartment. Even that slight lack of robust color he had remarked was not noticeable in the soft glow. The drawn chintz curtains, they had a flowered and trellised pattern with baskets and oaten pipes, fell in long, quiet folds to the window seats. The rows of bindings in old bookcases took the light richly. The last trace of sallowness had gone with the daylight— and, if the truth must be told, it had been Elsie herself who seemed a little out of the picture. That reflection struck him a little, and presently he returned to it. Yes, the room had quite accidentally done Miss Bengo a disservice that afternoon. It had in some subtle but unmistakable way placed her, marked a contrast of qualities— Assuming for the sake of argument the slightly ridiculous proposition that the room in which Oleron sat was characterized by a certain sparsity and lack of vigor, so much the worse for Miss Bengo. She certainly erred on the side of redundancy and general muchness. And, if one must contrast abstract qualities, Oleron inclined to the austere in taste. Yes, here Oleron had made a distinct discovery. He wondered that he had not made it before. He pictured Miss Bengo again as she had appeared that afternoon. Large, showy, moistly pink, with that quality of the prize bloom exuding, as it were, from her, and instantly she suffered in his thought. He even recognized now that he had noticed something odd at the time, and that, unconsciously, his attitude, even while she had been there, had been one of criticism. The mechanism of her was a little obvious. Her melting humidity was the result of analyzable processes, and behind her there had seemed to lurk some dim shape emblematic of mortality. He had never, during the ten years of their intimacy, dreamed for a moment of asking her to marry him. Nonetheless, he now felt for the first time a thankfulness that he had not done so. Then— Suddenly and swiftly his face flamed that he should be thinking thus of his friend. What? Elsie Bingo, with whom he had spent weeks and weeks of afternoons. She, the good chum on whose help he would have counted, had all the rest of the world failed him. She, whose loyalty to him would not, he knew, swerve as long as there was breath in her. Elsie, to be even in thought dissected such— he was an ingrate and a cad. Had she been there in that moment, he would have abased himself before her. For ten minutes and more he sat, still gazing into the fire, all that humiliating red fading slowly from his cheeks. 
All was still within and without, save for a tiny musical tinkling that came from his kitchen, the dripping of water from an imperfectly turned-off tap into the vessel beneath it. Mechanically, he began to beat with his finger to the faintly heard falling of the drops. The tiny regular movement seemed to hasten that shameful withdrawal from his face. He grew cool once more. And when he resumed his meditation, he was all unconscious that he took it up again at the same point. It was not only her florid superfluity of build that he had approached in the attitude of criticism. He was conscious also of the wide differences between her mind and his own. He felt no thankfulness that up to a certain point their natures had ever run companionably side by side. She was now full of questions beyond that point. Their intellects diverged. There was no denying it, and looking back he was inclined to doubt whether there had ever been any real coincidence. True, he had read his writings to her, and she had appeared to speak comprehendingly and to the point. But what can a man do, who, having assumed that another sees as he does, is suddenly brought up sharp by something that falsifies and discredits all that has gone before? He doubted all now. It did for a moment occur to him that the man who demands of a friend more than can be given to him is in danger of losing that friend, but he put the thought aside. Again he ceased to think, and again moved his finger to the distant dripping of the tap. And now, he resumed by and by, if these things were true of Elsie Bengo, they were also true of the creation of which she was the prototype, Romilly Bishop, and since he could say of Romilly what for very shame he could not say of Elsie, he gave his thoughts rein. He did so in that smiling, fire-lighted room, to the accompaniment of the faintly heard tap. There was no longer any doubt about it. He hated the central character of his novel. Even as he had described her physically, she overpowered the senses. She was coarse-fibred, over-colored, rank. It became true the moment he formulated his thought. Gulliver had described the Brobdenagian maids of honor thus, and mentally and spiritually she corresponded, was unsensitive, limited, common. The model, he closed his eyes for a moment, the model stuck throughout the fifteen vulgar and blatant chapters to such a pitch that without seeing the reason he had been unable to begin the sixteenth, he marveled that it had only just dawned on him. And this was to have been his Beatrice, his vision. As Elsie, she was to have gone into the furnace of his art, and she was to have come out the woman all men desire. Her thoughts were to have been culled from his own finest, her form from his dearest dreams, and her setting wherever he could find one fit for her. He had brooded long before making the attempt. Then one day, he had felt her stir within him as a mother feels a quickening, and he had begun to write, and so he had added chapter to chapter. And those fifteen sodden chapters were what he had produced. And he sat, softly moving his finger. Then he bestirred himself. She must go, all fifteen chapters of her. That was settled. For what was to take her place, his mind was a blank, but one thing at a time. A man is not excused from taking the wrong course, because the right one is not immediately revealed to him. Better would come if it was to come. In the meantime, he rose, 
fetched the fifteen chapters and read them over before he should drop them into the fire. But instead of putting them into the fire, he let them fall from his hand. He became conscious of the dripping of the tap again. It had a tinkling gamut of four or five notes, on which it rang irregular changes, and it was foolishly sweet and dulcimer-like. In his mind, Oleron could see the gathering of each drop, its little tremble on the lip of the tap, and the tiny percussion of its fall. Plink, plunk, minimized almost to inaudibility. Following the lowest note, there seemed to be a brief phrase, irregularly repeated, and presently Oleron found himself waiting for the recurrence of this phrase. It was quite pretty, but it did not conduce to wakefulness, and Oleron dozed before his fire. When he awoke again, the fire had burned low, and the flames of the candle were licking the rims of the Sheffield sticks. Sluggishly he rose, yawned, went his nightly round of door locks and window fastenings, and passed into his bedroom. Soon he slept soundly. But a curious little sequel followed on the morrow. Mrs. Barrett usually tapped, not at his door, but at the wooden wall beyond which lay Oleron's bed, and then Oleron rose, put on his dressing-gown, and admitted her. He was not conscious that as he did so that morning he hummed an air, but Mrs. Barrett lingered with her hand on the doorknob and her face a little averted and smiling. "'Dear me!' her soft falsetto rose. "'But that will be a very old tune, Mr. Oleron. I will not have heard it this forty years.' "'What tune?' Oleron said. "'The tune, indeed, that you was humming, sir.' Oleron had his thumb in the flap of a letter. It remained there. "'I was humming. Sing it, Mrs. Barrett.' Mrs. Barrett pretted. "'I have no voice for singing, Mr. Oleron. It was Anne Pugh that was the singer of our family. But the tune will be very old, and it is called The Beckoning Fair One.' "'Try to sing it,' said Oleron, his thumb still in the envelope, and Mrs. Barrett, with much dimpling and confusion, hummed the air. "'They do say it was sung to a harp, Mr. Oleron, and it will be very old,' she concluded. "'And I was singing that?' "'Indeed you was. I would not be likely to tell you lies.' With a, "'Very well, let me have breakfast,' Oleron opened his letter." but the trifling circumstance struck him as more odd than he would have admitted to himself. The phrase he had hummed had been that which he had associated with the falling from the tap on the evening before. 5. Even more curious than that the commonplace dripping of an ordinary water tap should have tallied so closely with an actually existing error was another result it had, namely that it awakened or seemed to awaken in Oleron an abnormal sensitiveness to other noises of the old house. It has been remarked that silence obtains its fullest and most impressive quality when it is broken by some minute sound, and, truth to tell, the place was never still. Perhaps the mildness of the spring air operated on its torpid old timbers. Perhaps Oleron's fires caused it to stretch its old anatomy, and certainly a whole world of insect life bored and burrowed in its balks and joists. At any rate, Oleron had only to sit quiet in his chair and to wait for a minute or two in order to become aware of such a change in the auditory scale as comes upon a man 
who, conceiving the midsummer woods to be motionless and still, all at once finds his ear sharpened to the crepitation of a myriad insects. And he smiled, to think of man's arbitrary distinction between that which has life and that which has not. Here, quite apart from such recognizable sounds as the scampering of mice, the falling of plaster behind his paneling, and the popping of purses or coffins from his fire, was a whole house talking to him had he but known the language. Beams settled with a tired sigh into their old mortises, creatures ticked in the walls, joints cracked, boards complained, with no palpable stirring of the air, window sashes changed their positions with a soft knock in their frames. And whether the place had life in this sense or not, it had at all events a winsome personality. It needed but an hour of musing for Oleron to conceive the idea that, as his own body stood in friendly relation to his soul, so, by an extension and an attenuation, his habitation might fantastically be supposed to stand in some relation to himself. He even amused himself with the far-fetched fancy that he might so identify himself with the place that some future tenant, taking possession, might regard it as, in a sense, haunted. It would be rather a joke if he, a perfectly harmless author with nothing on his mind worse than a novel he had discovered he must begin again, should turn out to be laying the foundation of a future ghost. In proportion, however, as he felt this growing attachment to the fabric of his abode, Elsie Bingo, from merely being unattracted, began to show a dislike of the place that was more and more marked, and she did not scruple to speak of her aversion. "'It doesn't belong to today at all, and for you especially, it's bad,' she said with decision. "'You're only too ready to let go your hold on actual things and to slip into apathy. "'You ought to be at a place with concrete floors and a patent gas-meter and a tradesman's lift, "'and it would do you all the good in the world if you had a job that made you scramble and rub elbows with your fellow men. "'Now, if I could get you a job, say for two or three days a week, "'one that would allow you heaps of time for your proper work,' Would you take it? Somehow, Oleron resented a little being diagnosed like this. He thanked Miss Bengo, but without a smile. Thank you, but I don't think so. After all, each of us has his own life to live. He could not refrain from adding. His own life to live? How long is it since you were out, Paul? About two hours. I don't mean to buy stamps or to post a letter. How long is it since you had anything like a stretch? Oh, some little time, perhaps. I don't know. Since I was here last. I haven't been out much. And has Romilly progressed much better for your being cooped up? I think she has. I am laying the foundations of her. I shall begin the actual writing presently. It seemed as if Miss Bingo had forgotten their tussle about the first Romilly. She frowned, turned half away, and then quickly turned again. Ah, so you've still got that ridiculous idea in your head. If you mean, said Oleron slowly, that I've discarded the old Romilly and am at work on a new one, you're right. I have still got that idea in my head. Something uncordial in his tone struck her, but she was a fighter. His own absurd sensitiveness hardened her. She gave a pshaw of impatience. "'Where's the old one?' she demanded abruptly. "'Why?' asked Oleron. "'I 
want to see it. I want to show some of it to you. I want, if you're not wool-gathering entirely, to bring you back to your senses. This time it was he who turned his back. But when he turned round again, he spoke more gently. It's no good, Elsie. I'm responsible for the way I go, and you must allow me to go it, even if it should seem wrong to you. Believe me, I am giving thought to it. The manuscript? I was on the point of burning it, but I didn't. It's in that window seat if you must see it. Miss Bengo crossed quickly to the window seat and lifted the lid. Suddenly she gave a little exclamation and put the back of her hand to her mouth. She spoke over her shoulder. You ought to knock these nails in, Paul, she said. He strode to her side. What? What is it? What's the matter? he asked. I did knock them in, or rather pulled them out. You left enough to scratch with, she replied, showing her hand. From the upper wrist to the knuckle of the little finger a welling red wound showed. Good gracious, Oleron ejaculated. Here, come to the bathroom and bathe it quickly. He hurried her to the bathroom, turned on warm water and bathed and cleansed the bad gash. Then holding the hand, he turned cold water on it, uttering broken phrases of astonishment and concern. "'Good Lord! How did that happen? As far as I knew, I'd—' "'Is this water too cold? Does that hurt? I, I can't imagine how on earth—' "'There, there, that'll do.' "'No, one moment longer. I can bear it,' she murmured, her eyes closed. Presently he led her back to the sitting-room, and bound the hand in one of his handkerchiefs, but his face did not lose its expression of perplexity.' He had spent half a day in opening and making serviceable the three window-boxes, and he could not conceive how he had come to leave an inch and a half of rusty nail standing in the wood. He himself had opened the lids of each of them a dozen times and had not noticed any nail. But there it was. "'It shall come out now at all events,' he muttered, as he went for a pair of pinchers, and he made no mistake about it that time." Elsie Bingo had sunk into a chair, and her face was rather white, but in her hand was the manuscript of Romilly. She had not finished with Romilly yet. Presently she returned to the charge. "'Oh, Paul, it will be the greatest mistake you ever, ever make if you do not publish this,' she said. He hung his head, genuinely distressed. He couldn't get that incident of the nail out of his head, and Romilly occupied a second place in his thoughts for the moment. But still she insisted, and when he presently spoke, it was almost as if he asked her pardon for something. "'What can I say, Elsie? I can only hope that when you see the new version you'll see how right I am. And if in spite of all you don't like her, well—' He made a hopeless gesture. "'Don't you see that I must be guided by my own lights?' She was silent. "'Come, Elsie,' he said gently. "'We've got along well so far. Don't let us split on this.' The last words had hardly passed his lips before he regretted them. She had been nursing her injured hand with her eyes once more closed, but her lips and lids quivered simultaneously. Her voice shook as she spoke. "'I can't help saying it, Paul, but you are so greatly changed.' "'Hush, Elsie,' he murmured soothingly. "'You've had a shock. Rest for a while. How could I change?' "'I don't know, but you are. You've not been yourself ever since you came here. 
I wish you had never seen the place. It stopped your work. It's making you into a person I hardly know, and it's made me horribly anxious about you. Oh, how my hand is beginning to throb. Poor child, he murmured. Will you let me take you to a doctor and have it properly dressed? No, I shall be all right presently. I'll keep it raised. She put her elbow on the back of her chair, and the bandaged hand rested lightly on his shoulder. At that touch, an entirely new anxiety stirred suddenly within him. Hundreds of times previously on their jaunts and excursions, she had slipped her hand within his arm as she might have slipped it into the arm of a brother, and he had accepted the little affectionate gesture as a brother might have accepted it. But now for the first time there rushed into his mind a hundred startling questions— her eyes were still closed, and her head had fallen pathetically back, and there was a lost and ineffable smile on her parted lips. The truth broke in upon him. Good God! And he had never divined it. And stranger than all was that now that he did see that she was lost in love of him, there came to him not sorrow and humility and abasement, but something else that he struggled in vain against something entirely strange and new that, had he analyzed it, he would have found to be petulance and irritation and resentment and ungentleness. The sudden selfish prompting mastered him before he was aware. He all but gave it words. What was she doing there at all? Why was she not getting on with her own work? Why was she here interfering with his? Who had given her this guardianship over him that lately she had put forward so assertively? Changed? It was she, not himself, who had changed. But by the time she had opened her eyes again, he had overcome his resentment sufficiently to speak gently, albeit with reserve. I wish you would let me take you to a doctor. She rose. No, thank you, Paul, she said. I'll go now. If I need a dressing, I'll get one. Take the other hand, please. Goodbye. He did not attempt to detain her. He walked with her to the foot of the stairs. Halfway along the narrow alley, she turned. It would be a long way to come if you happened not to be in, she said. I'll send you a postcard the next time. At the gate, she turned again. Leave here, Paul, she said with a mournful look. "'Everything's wrong with this house.' Then she was gone. Oleron returned to his room. He crossed straight to the window-box. He opened the lid and stood long looking at it. Then he closed it again and turned away. "'That's rather frightening,' he muttered. "'It's simply not possible that I should not have removed that nail.'" 6. Oleron knew very well what Elsie had meant when she had said that her next visit would be preceded by a postcard. She, too, had realized that at last, at last he knew, knew and didn't want her. It gave him a miserable, pitiful pang, therefore, when she came again within a week, knocking at the door unannounced. She spoke from the landing. She did not intend to stay, she said, and he had to press her before she would so much as enter. Her excuse for calling was that she had heard of an inquiry for short stories that he might be wise to follow up. He thanked her. Then, her business over, she seemed anxious to get away. Oleron did not seek to detain her. 
Even he saw through the pretext of the stories, and he accompanied her down the stairs. But Elsie Bingo had no luck whatever in that house. A second accident befell her. Halfway down the staircase there was the sharp sound of splintering wood, and she checked a loud cry. Oleron knew the woodwork to be old, but he himself had ascended and descended frequently enough without mishap. Elsie had put her foot through one of the stairs. He sprang to her side in alarm. Oh, I say, my poor girl! She laughed hysterically. It's my weight. I know I'm getting fat. Keep still. Let me clear these splinters away, he muttered between his teeth. She continued to laugh and sob that it was her weight. She was getting fat. He thrust downward at the broken boards. The extrication was no easy matter and her torn boot showed him how badly the foot and ankle within it must be abraded. "'Good God! Good God!' he muttered over and over. "'I shall be too heavy for anything soon!' she sobbed and laughed. But she refused to reascend and to examine her hurt. "'No, let me go quickly! Let me go quickly!' she repeated. "'But it's a frightful gash!' "'No, not so bad! Let me get away quickly! I'm—' "'I'm not wanted!' At her words that she was not wanted, his head dropped as if she had given him a buffet. "'Elsie!' he choked brokenly and shocked. But she, too, made a quick gesture, as if she put something violently aside. "'Oh, Paul, not that, not you! Of course I do mean that, too, in a sense. Oh, you know what I mean. But if the other can't be, spare me this now. I wouldn't have come, but—but—' Oh, I did, did try to keep away. It was intolerable, heartbreaking. But what could he do? What could he say? He did not love her. Let me go. I'm not wanted. Let me take away what's left of me. Dear Elsie, you are very dear to me. But again she made the gesture as of putting something violently aside. No, not that. "'Not anything less. Don't offer me anything less. Leave me a little pride. "'Let me get my hat and coat. Let me take you to a doctor,' he muttered. But she refused. She refused even the support of his arm. She gave another unsteady laugh. "'I'm sorry I broke your stairs, Paul. You will go and see about the short stories, won't you?' He groaned. "'Then if you won't see a doctor, will you go across the square and let Mrs. Barrett look at you? Look, there's Barrett passing now.' The long-nosed Barrett was looking curiously down the alley, but as Oleron was about to call him, he made off without a word. Elsie seemed anxious for nothing so much as to be clear of the place, and finally promised to go straight to a doctor, but insisted on going alone. "'Good-bye,' she said and Oleron watched her until she was past the hatchet-like to let boards, as if he feared that even they might fall upon her and maim her. That night Oleron did not dine. He had far too much on his mind. He walked from room to room of his flat, as if he could have walked away from Elsie Bingo's haunting cry that still rang in his ears. "'I'm not wanted. Don't offer me anything less. Let me take away what's left of me.' Oh, if he could have only persuaded himself that he loved her! He walked until twilight fell. Then, without lighting candles, he stirred up the fire and flung himself into a chair. Poor, poor Elsie! 
But even while his heart ached for her, it was out of the question. If only he had known. If only he had used common observation. But those walks, those sisterly takings of the arm. What a fool he had been. Well, it was too late now. It was she, not he, who must now act. Act by keeping away. He would help her all he could. He himself would not sit in her presence. If she came, he would hurry her out again as fast as he could. Poor, poor Elsie. His room grew dark. The fire burned dead, and he continued to sit, wincing from time to time as a fresh, tortured phrase rang again in his ears. Then suddenly he knew not why. He found himself anxious for her in a new sense, uneasy about her personal safety, a horrible fancy that even then she might be looking over an embankment down into dark water, that she might even now be glancing up at the hook on the door, took him. Women had been known to do these things. Then there would be an inquest, and he himself would be called upon to identify her, and would be asked how she had come by an ill-healed wound on the hand and a bad abrasion of the ankle. Barrett would say that he had seen her leaving his house. Then he recognized that his thoughts were morbid. By an effort of will he put them aside and sat for a while, listening to the faint creakings and tickings and rappings within his paneling. If only he could have married her. But he couldn't. Her face had risen again before him, as he had seen it on the stairs, drawn with pain and ugly and swollen with tears. Ugly, yes, positively blubbered. If tears were women's weapons as they were said to be, such tears were weapons turned against themselves. Suicide again. Then, all at once, he found himself attentively considering her two accidents. Extraordinary they had been, both of them. He could not have left that old nail standing in the wood. Why, he had fetched tools specially from the kitchen, and he was convinced that the step that had broken beneath her weight had been as sound as the others. It was inexplicable. If these things could happen, anything could happen. There was not a beam nor a jam in the place that might not fall without warning, not a plank that might not crash inwards, not a nail that might not become a dagger. The whole place was full of life even now. As he sat there in the dark, he heard its crowds of noises as if the house had been one great microphone. Only half conscious that he did so, he had been sitting for some time identifying these noises, attributing to each crack or creak or knock its material cause. But there was one noise which, again, not fully conscious of the omission, he had not sought to account for. It had last come some minutes ago. It came again now, a sort of soft, sweeping rustle that seemed to hold an almost inaudibly minute crackling. For half a minute or so it had Oleron's attention. Then his heavy thoughts were of Elsie Bengo again. He was nearer to loving her in that moment than he had ever been. He thought how to some men— their loved ones were but the dearer, but for those poor mortal blemishes that tell us we are but sojourners on earth, with a common fate not far distant that makes it hardly worth while to do anything but love for the time being. Strangling sobs, blearing tears, bodies buffeted by sickness, hearts and minds callous and hard with the rubs of the world. How little love there would be were these things a barrier to love. 
In that sense, he did love Elsie Bingo. What her happiness had never moved in him, her sorrow almost awoke. Suddenly his meditation went. His ear had once more become conscious of that soft and repeated noise, the long sweep with the almost inaudible crackle in it. Again and again it came, with a curious insistency and urgency. It quickened a little as he became increasingly attentive. It seemed to Oleron that it grew louder. All at once he started bolt upright in his chair, tense and listening. The silky rustle came again. He was trying to attach it to something. The next moment he had leapt to his feet, unnerved and terrified. His chair hung poised for a moment, and then it went over, setting the fire irons clattering as it fell. There was only one noise in the world like that which had caused him to spring thus to his feet. The next time it came, Oleron felt behind him at the empty air with his hand, and backed slowly until he found himself against the wall. God in heaven! The ejaculation broke from Oleron's lips. The sound had ceased. The next moment he had given a high cry. What is it? What's there? Who's there? A sound of scuttling caused his knees to bend under him for a moment, but that, he knew, was a mouse. That was not something that turned his stomach sick and his mind reeled to entertain. That other sound, the like of which was not in the world, had now entirely ceased, and again he called. He called, and continued to call, and then another terror, a terror of the sound of his own voice, seized him. He did not dare to call again. His shaking hand went to his pocket for a match, but found none. He thought that there might be some matches on the mantelpiece. He worked his way to the mantelpiece round a little recess without for a moment leaving the wall. Then his hand encountered the mantelpiece and groped along it. A box of matches fell to the hearth. He could just see them in the firelight, but his hand could not pick them up until he had cornered them inside the fender. Then he rose and struck a light. The room was as usual. He struck a second match. A candle stood on the table. He lighted it, and the flame sank for a moment, and then burned up clear. Again he looked round. There was nothing. There was nothing. But there had been something, and might still be something. Formerly, Oleron had smiled at the fantastic thought that, by a merging and interplay of identities between himself and his beautiful room, he might be preparing a ghost for the future. It had not occurred to him that there might have been a similar merging and coalescence in the past. Yet, with this staggering impossibility, he was now face to face. Something did persist in the house. It had a tenant other than himself, and that tenant, whatsoever or whosoever, had appalled Oleron's soul by producing the sound of a woman brushing her hair. 7. Without quite knowing how he came to be there, Oleron found himself striding over the loose board he had temporarily placed on the step broken by Miss Bengo. He was hatless and descending the stairs. Not until later did there return to him a hazy memory that he had left the candle burning on the table. 
had opened the door no wider than was necessary to allow the passage of his body, and had sidled out, closing the door softly behind him. At the foot of the stairs another shock awaited him. Something dashed with a flurry up from the disused cellars and disappeared out of the door. It was only a cat, but Oleron gave a childish sob. He passed out of the gate and stood for a moment under the toilette boards, plucking foolishly at his lip and looking up at the glimmer of light behind one of his red blinds. Then, still looking over his shoulder, he moved stumblingly up the square. There was a small public house round the corner. Oleron had never entered it, but he entered it now, and putting down a shilling that missed the counter by inches. But, 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 Brandy, he said and then stooped to look for the shilling. He had the little sawdusted bar to himself, what company there was, carters and laborers and the small tradesmen of the neighborhood, was gathered in the farther compartment, beyond the space where the white-haired landlady moved among her taps and bottles. Oleron sat down on a hardwood settee with a perforated seat, drank half his brandy, and then, thinking he might as well drink as spill it, finished it. Then he fell to wondering which of the men whose voices he heard across the public-house would undertake the removal of his effects on the morrow. In the meantime, he ordered more brandy. For he did not intend to go back to that room where he had left the candle-burning. Oh, no! He wouldn't have faced even the entry in the staircase with the broken step— certainly not that pith-white fascinating room. He would go back for the present to his old arrangement, of workroom and separate sleeping quarters. He would go to his old landlady at once, presently, when he had finished his brandy, and see if she could put him up for the night. His glass was empty now. He rose, had it refilled, and sat down again. And if anybody asked his reason for removing again? Oh, he had reason enough, "'Reason enough! Nails that put themselves back into wood again, and gashed people's hands, "'steps that broke when you trod on them, and women who came to a man's place "'and brushed their hair in the dark were reasons enough. "'He was querulous and injured about it all. "'He had taken the place for himself, not for invisible women to brush their hair in. "'That lawyer fellow in Lincoln's Inn should be told so, too, before many hours were out.' It was outrageous letting people in for agreements like that. A cut-glass partition divided the compartment where Oleron sat from the space where the white-haired landlady moved, but it stopped seven or eight inches above the level of the counter. There was no partition at the farther bar. Presently Oleron, raising his eyes, saw that faces were watching him through the aperture. The faces disappeared when he looked at them. He moved to a corner where he could not be seen from the other bar, but this brought him into line with the white-haired landlady. She knew him by sight, had doubtless seen him passing and repassing, and presently she made a remark on the weather. Oleron did not know what he replied, but it sufficed to call forth the further remark that the winter had been a bad one for influenza, but that the spring weather seemed to be coming at last." Even this slight contact with the commonplace steadied Oleron a little. An idle, nascent wonder whether the landlady brushed her hair every night, and if so, whether it gave out those little electric cracklings, was shut down with a snap. And Oleron was better. With his next glass of brandy, he was all for going back to his flat. Not go back? 
Indeed, he would go back. He should very soon see whether he was to be turned out of his place like that. He began to wonder why he was doing the rather unusual thing he was doing at that moment. Unusual for him, sitting hatless, drinking brandy, in a public house. Suppose he were to tell the white-haired landlady all about it. To tell her that a caller had scratched her hand on a nail, had later had the bad luck to put her foot through a rotten stair, and that he himself, in an old house full of creaks and squeaks and whispers, had heard a minute noise and had bolted from it in fright. What would she think of him? That he was mad, of course. Pshaw! The real truth of the matter was that he hadn't been doing enough work to occupy him. He had been dreaming his days away, filling his head with a lot of moonshine about a new Romilly, as if the old one was not good enough, and now he was surprised that the devil should enter an empty head. Yes, he would go back. He would take a walk in the air first. He hadn't walked enough lately. And then he would take himself in hand, settle the hash of that sixteenth chapter of Romilly. Fancy! He had actually been fool enough to think of destroying fifteen chapters, and thenceforward he would remember that he had obligations to his fellow men and work to do in the world. There was the matter in a nutshell. He finished his brandy and went out. He had walked for some time before any other bearing of the matter than that on himself occurred to him. At first the fresh air had increased the heady effect of the brandy he had drunk. But afterwards his mind grew clearer than it had been since morning, and the clearer it grew, the less final did his boastful self-assurances become, and the firmer his conviction that when all explanations had been made, there remained something that could not be explained. His hysteria of an hour before had passed; he grew steadily calmer, but the disquieting conviction remained. A deep fear took possession of him; it was a fear for Elsie. For something in his place was inimical to her safety. Of themselves, her two accidents might not have persuaded him of this, but she herself had said it. "I'm not wanted here," and she had declared that there was something wrong with the place. She had seen it before he had. Well and good. One thing stood out clearly, namely that if this was so, she must be kept away for quite another reason than that which had so confounded and humiliated Oleron. Luckily, she had expressed her intention of staying away. She must be held to that intention. He must see to it, and he must see to it all the more that he now saw his first impulse, never to set foot in the place again, was absurd. People did not do that kind of thing. With Elsie made secure, he could not, with any respect to himself, suffer himself to be turned out by a shadow, nor even by a danger merely because it was a danger. He had to live somewhere, and he would live there. He must return. He mastered the faint chill of fear that came with the decision and turned in his walk abruptly. Should fear grow on him again, he would perhaps take one more glass of brandy. But by the time he reached the short street that led to the square, he was too late for more brandy. The little public house was still lighted but closed, and one or two men were standing talking on the curb. Oleron noticed that a sudden silence fell on them as he passed, and he noticed further that the long-nosed Barrett, whom he passed a little lower down, did not return his good night. He turned in at the broken gate, hesitated merely an instant in the alley, and then mounted his stairs again. 
Only an inch of candle remained in the Sheffield stick, and Oleron did not light another one. Deliberately, he forced himself to take it up and to make a tour of his five rooms before retiring. It was as he returned from the kitchen across his little hall that he noticed a letter lay on the floor. He carried it into his sitting-room and glanced at the envelope before opening it. It was unstamped and had been put into the door by hand. Its handwriting was clumsy, and it ran from beginning to end without comma or period. Oleron read the first line, turned to the signature, and then finished the letter. It was from the man Barrett and it informed Oleron that he, Barrett, would be obliged if Mr. Oleron would make other arrangements for the preparing of his breakfasts and the cleaning out of his place. The sting lay in the tail, that is to say, the postscript. This consisted of a text of scripture. It embodied an allusion that could only be to Elsie Bengo. A seldom-seen frown had cut deeply into Oleron's brow. So, that was it. Very well. They would see about that on the morrow. For the rest, this seemed merely another reason why Elsie should keep away. Then his suppressed rage broke out. The foul-minded lot, the devil himself, could not have given a leer at anything that had ever passed between Paul Oleron and Elsie Bengo. Yet this nosing rascal must be prying and talking." Oleron crumpled the paper up, held it in the candle flame, and then ground the ashes under his heel. One useful purpose, however, the letter had served. It had created in Oleron a wrathful blaze that effectually banished pale shadows. Nevertheless, one other puzzling circumstance was to close the day. As he undressed, he chanced to glance at his bed. The coverlets bore an impress, as if somebody had lain on them. Oleron could not remember that he himself had lain down during the day. Offhand, he would have said that certainly he had not. But after all, he could not be positive. His indignation for Elsie, acting possibly with the residue of the brandy in him, excluded all other considerations, and he put out his candle, lay down, and passed immediately into a deep and dreamless sleep, which, in the absence of Mrs. Barrett's morning call, lasted almost once round the clock. 8. To the man who pays heed to that voice within him which warns him that twilight and danger are settling over his soul, terror is apt to appear an absolute thing, against which his heart must be safeguarded in a twink, unless there is to take place an alteration in the whole range and scale of his nature. Mercifully, he never has far to look for safeguards. Of the immediate and small and common and momentary things of life, of usages and observances and modes and conventions, he builds up fortifications against the powers of darkness. He is even content that not terror only, but joy also, should for working purposes be placed in the category of the absolute things, and the last treason he will commit will be that breaking down of terms and limits that strikes not at one man, but at the welfare of the souls of all. In his own person, Oleron began to commit this treason. He began to commit it by admitting the inexplicable and horrible to an increasing familiarity. He did it insensibly, 
unconsciously, by a neglect of the things that he now regarded it as an impertinence in Elsie Bingo to have prescribed. Two months before, the words, A haunted house, applied to his lovely, bemusing dwelling, would have chilled his marrow. Now, his scale of sensation becoming depressed, he could ask, Haunted by what? and remain unconscious that horror, when it can be proved to be relative, by so much loses its proper quality. He was setting aside the landmarks. Mists and confusion had begun to enwrap him. And he was conscious of nothing so much as of a voracious inquisitiveness. He wanted to know. He was resolved to know. Nothing but the knowledge would satisfy him, and craftily he cast about for means whereby he might attain it. He might well have spared his craft. The matter was the thing easiest imaginable. As in time past he had known, in his writing, moments when his thoughts seemed to rise of themselves and to embody themselves in words not to be altered afterwards— so now the questions he put himself seemed to be answered even in the moment of their asking. There was exhilaration in the swift, easy processes. He had known no such joy in his own power since the days when his writing had been a daily freshness and a delight to him. It was almost as if the course he must pursue was being dictated to him. And the first thing he must do, of course, was to define the problem. He defined it in terms of mathematics— Granted that he had not the place to himself, granted that the old house had inexpressibly caught and engaged his spirit, granted that by virtue of the common denominator of the place this unknown co-tenant stood in some relation to himself, what next? Clearly the nature of the other numerator must be ascertained. And how? Ordinarily this would not have seemed simple, but to Oleron it was now pellucidly clear. The key, of course, lay in his half-written novel, or rather in both Romilly's, the old and the proposed new one. A little while before, Oleron would have thought himself mad to have embraced such an opinion. Now he accepted the dizzying hypothesis without a quiver. He began to examine the first and second Romilly's. From the moment of his doing so, the thing advanced by leaps and bounds. Swiftly he reviewed the history of the Romilly of the fifteen chapters. He remembered clearly now that he had found her insufficient on the very first morning on which he had sat down to work in his new place. Other instances of his aversion leaped up to confirm his obscure investigation. There had come the night when he had hardly forborne to throw the whole thing into the fire and the next morning he had begun the planning of the new Romilly. It had been on that morning that Mrs. Barrett, overhearing him humming a brief phrase that the dripping of a tap the night before had suggested, had informed him that he was singing some air he had never in his life heard before, called The Beckoning Fair One. The Beckoning Fair One! With scarcely a pause in thought, he continued. The first Romilly, having been definitely thrown over, the second had instantly fastened herself upon him, clamoring for birth in his brain. He even fancied now, looking back, that there had been something like passion, hate almost, in the supplanting, and that more than once a stray thought given to his discarded creation had—it was astonishing how credible Oleron found the almost unthinkable idea—had offended the supplanter. Yet that a malignancy almost homicidal should be extended to his fiction's poor mortal prototype. 
in spite of his inuring to a scale in which the horrible was now a thing to be fingered and turned this way and that, a good God broke from Oleron. This intrusion of the first Romilly's prototype into his thought again was a factor that for the moment brought his inquiry into the nature of his problem to a termination. The mere thought of Elsie was fatal to anything abstract. For another thing, he could not yet think of that letter of Barrett's, nor of a little scene that had followed it, without a mounting color and a quick contraction of the brow. For, wisely or not, he had had that argument out at once. Striding across the square on the following morning, he had bearded Barrett on his own doorstep. Coming back again a few minutes later, he had been strongly of opinion that he had only made matters worse. The man had been vagueness itself. He had not been to be either challenged or browbeaten into anything more definite than a muttered farrago in which the words, "'Certain things, Mrs. Barrett, respectable house, if the cap fits, proceedings that shall be nameless,' had been constantly repeated. "'Not that I make any charge,' he had concluded. "'Charge?' Oleron had cried. "'I have my ideas of things, as I don't doubt you have yours.' "'Ideas? Mine?' Oleron had cried wrathfully, immediately dropping his voice as heads had appeared at windows of the square. "'Look you here, my man. You've an unwholesome mind, which probably you can't help, but a tongue which you can help, and shall, if there is a breath of this repeated.' "'I'll not be talked to on my own doorstep like this by anybody,' Baird had blustered. "'You shall, and I'm doing it.' "'Don't you forget there's a God above all who has said, "'You're a low scandal-monger,' and so forth, "'continuing badly what was already badly begun. "'Oleron had returned wrathfully to his own house, "'and thenceforth looking out of his windows "'had seen Barrett's face at odd times, "'lifting blinds or peering round curtains, "'as if he sought to put himself in possession "'of heaven knew what evidence, "'in case it should be required of him. "'The unfortunate occurrence "'made certain minor differences "'in Oleron's domestic arrangements. "'Barrett's tongue, he gathered, "'had already been busy.' He was looked at askance by the dwellers of the square, and he judged it better, until he should be able to obtain other help, to make his purchases of provisions a little farther afield, rather than at the small shops of the immediate neighborhood. For the rest, housekeeping was no new thing to him, and he would resume his old bachelor habits. Besides, he was deep in certain rather abstruse investigations, in which it was better that he should not be disturbed." He was looking out of his window one midday, rather tired, not very well, and glad that it was not very likely he would have to stir out of doors, when he saw Elsie Bingo crossing the square toward his house. The weather had broken. It was a raw and gusty day, and she had to force her way against the wind that set her ample skirts bellying about her opulent figure, and her veil spinning and streaming behind her. Oleron acted swiftly and instinctively. Seizing his hat, he sprang to the door and descended the stairs at a run. A sort of panic had seized him. She must be prevented from setting foot in the place. As he ran along the alley, he was conscious that his eyes went up to the eaves as if something drew them. He did not know that a slate might not accidentally fall. 
he met her at the gate, and spoke with curious volubleness. "'This is really too bad, Elsie, just as I'm urgently called away. I'm afraid it can't be helped, though, and that you'll have to think me an inhospitable beast.' He poured it out just as it came into his head. She asked if he was going to town. "'Yes, yes, to town,' he replied. "'I've got to call on—on on Chambers. You know Chambers, don't you?' "'No, I remember you don't. "'A big man you once saw me with. "'I ought to have gone yesterday, and—' "'This he felt to be a brilliant effort, "'and he's going out of town this afternoon. "'To Brighton, I had a letter from him this morning.' "'He took her arm and led her up the square. "'She had to remind him that his way to town lay in the other direction. <laughs> of, "'Of course, how stupid of me,' he said with a little loud laugh. "'I'm so used to going the other way with you.' "'Of course it's the other way to the bus. "'Will you come along with me? "'I'm so awfully sorry it happened like this.' "'They took the street to the bus terminus. "'This time Elsie bore no signs of having gone through interior struggles. "'If she detected anything unusual in his manner, she made no comment, "'and he, seeing her calm, began to talk less recklessly through silences. "'By the time they reached the bus terminus— Nobody, seeing the pallid-faced man without an overcoat, and the large, ample-skirted girl at his side, would have supposed that one of them was ready to sink on his knees for thankfulness that he had, as he believed, saved the other from a wildly unthinkable danger. They mounted to the top of the bus, Oleron protesting that he should not miss his overcoat, and that he found the day, if anything, rather oppressively hot. They sat down on a front seat. Now that this meeting was forced upon him, he had something else to say that would make demands upon his tact. It had been on his mind for some time, and was indeed peculiarly difficult to put. He revolved it for some minutes, and then, remembering the success of his story of a sudden call to town, cut the knot of his difficulty with another lie. "'I'm thinking of going away for a little while, Elsie,' he said. She merely said, "'Oh!' "'Somewhere for a change. I need a change. I think I shall go tomorrow or the day after. Yes, tomorrow, I think.' "'Yes,' she replied. "'I don't quite know how long I shall be,' he continued. "'I shall have to let you know when I am back.' "'Yes, let me know,' she replied in an even tone. The tone was, for her, suspiciously even. He was a little uneasy.' "'You don't ask me where I'm going,' he said, with a little cumbrous effort to rally her. She was looking straight before her, past the bus driver. "'I know,' she said. He was startled. "'How? You know?' "'You're not going anywhere,' she replied. He found not a word to say. It was a minute or so before she continued, in the same controlled voice she had employed from the start. "'You're not going anywhere. You weren't going out this morning. You only came out because I appeared. Don't behave as if we were strangers, Paul.' A flush of pink had mounted to his cheeks. He noted that the wind had given her the pink of early rhubarb. Still, he found nothing to say. "'Of course, you ought to go away,' she continued. "'I don't know whether you look at yourself often in the glass, but you're rather noticeable. Several people have turned to look at you this morning.' "'So, of course, you ought to go away, but you won't, and I know why.' He shivered, coughed a little, and then broke silence. 
Then if you know, there's no use in continuing this discussion, he said curtly. Not for me, perhaps, but there is for you, she replied. Shall I tell you what I know? No, he said in a voice slightly raised. No, she asked, her round eyes earnestly on him. No. Again he was getting out of patience with her. Again he was conscious of the strain. Her devotion and fidelity and love plagued him. She was only humiliating both herself and him. It would have been bad enough had he ever, by word or deed, given her cause for thus fastening herself on him. But there, that was the worst kind of life for a woman. Women such as she, business women, in and out of offices all the time, always, whether they realized it or not, made comradeship a cover for something else. They accepted the unconventional status, came and went freely, as men did, were honestly taken by men at their own valuation. And then... It turned out to be the other thing after all, and they went and fell in love. No wonder there was gossip in shops and squares and public houses. In a sense, the gossipers were in the right of it, independent yet not efficient, with some of womanhood's graces foregone, and yet with all the woman's hunger and need, half-sophisticated yet not wise. Oleron was tired of it all, and it was time he told her so. I suppose— he said tremblingly, looking down between his knees. I suppose the real trouble is in the life women who earn their own living are obliged to lead. He could not tell in what sense she took the lame generality. She merely replied, I suppose so. It can't be helped, he continued, but you do sacrifice a good deal. She agreed, a good deal, and then she added after a moment, What, for instance? You may or may not be gradually attaining a new status, but you're in a false position today. It was very likely, she said. She hadn't thought of it much in that light. And, he continued desperately, you're bound to suffer. Your most innocent acts are misunderstood. Motives you never dreamed of are attributed to you, and in the end it comes to... He hesitated a moment, and then took the plunge to the sidelong look and the leer. She took his meaning with perfect ease. She merely shivered a little as she pronounced the name. Barrett! His silence told her the rest. Anything further that was to be said must come from her. It came as the bus stopped at a stage and fresh passengers mounted the stairs. You'd better get down here and go back, Paul, she said. I understand perfectly. Perfectly. It isn't Barrett. You'd be able to deal with Barrett. It's merely convenient for you to say it's Barrett. I know what it is. But you said I wasn't to tell you that. Very well, but before you go, let me tell you why I came up this morning. In a dull tone, he asked her why. Again, she looked straight before her as she replied, I came to force your hand. Things couldn't go on as they have been going, you know. And now that's all over. All over, he repeated stupidly. All over. I want you now to consider yourself, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly free. I make only one reservation. He hardly had the spirit to ask her what that was. If I merely need you, she said, please don't give that a thought. That's nothing. I shan't come near for that. But, 
She dropped her voice. If you're in need of me, Paul, I shall know if you are, and you will be. Then I shall come at once, no matter what cost. You understand that? He could only groan. So that's understood, she concluded. And I think that's all. Now go back. I should advise you to walk back for your shivering. Goodbye. She gave him a cold hand, and he descended. He turned on the edge of the curb as the bus started again. For the first time in all the years he had known her, she parted from him with no smile and no wave of her long arm. 9. He stood on the curb, plunged in misery, looking after her as long as she remained in sight, but almost instantly with her disappearance he felt the heaviness lift a little from his spirit. She had given him his liberty, true, there was a sense in which he had never parted with it, but now was no time for splitting hairs. He was free to act, and all was clear ahead. Swiftly the sense of lightness grew in him. It became a positive rejoicing in his liberty, and before he was halfway home he had decided what must be done next. The vicar of the parish in which his dwelling was situated lived within ten minutes of the square. To his house Oleron turned his steps— it was necessary that he should have all the information he could get about this old house, with the insurance marks and the sloping to let boards, and the vicar was the person most likely to be able to furnish it. This last preliminary out of the way, and, ah-ha-ha, Oleron chuckled, things might be expected to happen. But he gained less information than he had hoped for. The house, the vicar said, was old, but there needed no vicar to tell Oleron that it was reputed, Oleron pricked up his ears, to be haunted. But there were few old houses about which some such rumor did not circulate among the ignorant, and the deplorable lack of faith of the modern world, the vicar thought, did not tend to dissipate these superstitions. For the rest, his manner was the soothing manner of one who prefers not to make statements without knowing how they will be taken by his hearer. Oleron smiled as he perceived this. "'You may leave my nerves out of the question,' he said. "'How long has the place been empty?' "'A dozen years, I should say,' the vicar replied. "'And the last tenant, did you know him or her?' Oleron was conscious of a tingling of his nerves as he offered the vicar the alternative of sex. "'Him,' said the vicar, "'a man, if I remember rightly, his name was Madley, an artist. He was a great recluse, seldom went out of the place, and—' The vicar hesitated, and then broke into a little gush of candor. "'And since you appear to have come for this information, "'and since it is better that the truth be told "'than that garbled versions should get about, "'I don't mind saying that this man madly died there "'under somewhat unusual circumstances. "'It was ascertained at the post-mortem "'that there was not a particle of food in his stomach, "'although he was found to not be without money, "'and his frame was simply worn out.' Suicide was spoken of, but you'll agree with me that deliberate starvation is, to say the least, an uncommon form of suicide. An open verdict was returned. Ah, said Oleron, does there happen to be any comprehensive history of this parish? No, partial ones only. I myself am not guiltless of having made a number of notes on its purely ecclesiastical history, its registers, and so forth. 
which I shall be happy to show you, if you would care to see them. But it is a large parish. I have only one curate, and my leisure, as you will readily understand. The extent of the parish and the scantiness of the vicar's leisure occupied the remainder of the interview, and Oleron thanked the vicar, took his leave, and walked slowly home. He walked slowly for a reason, twice turning away from the house within a stone's throw of the gate, and taking another turn of twenty minutes or so. He had a very ticklish piece of work now before him. It required the greatest mental concentration. It was nothing less than to bring his mind, if he might, into such a state of unpreoccupation and receptivity that he should see the place as he had seen it on that morning when, his removal accomplished, he had sat down to begin the sixteenth chapter of the first Romilly. For, could he recapture that first impression, he now hoped far more from it. Formerly he had carried no end of mental lumber. Before the influence of the place had been able to find him out at all, it had had the inertia of those dreary chapters to overcome. No results had shown. The process had been one of slow saturation, charging, filling up to a brim. But now he was light, unburdened, rid at last of both that Romilly and of her prototype. Now for the new unknown, coy, jealous, bewitching, beckoning fair. At half-past two of the afternoon he put his key into the Yale lock, entered, and closed the door behind him. His fantastic attempt was instantly and astonishingly successful. He could have shouted with triumph as he entered the room. It was as if he had escaped into it. Once more, as in the days when his writing had had a daily freshness and wonder and promise for him, he was conscious of that new ease and mastery and exhilaration and release. The air of the place seemed to hold more oxygen, as if his own specific gravity had changed. His very tread seemed less ponderable. The flowers in the bowls, the fair proportions of the meadow-sweet-colored panels and moldings, the polished floor, and the lofty and faintly-starred ceiling fairly laughed their welcome. Oleron actually laughed back and spoke aloud. "'Oh, you're pretty, pretty,' he flattered it. Then he lay down on his couch. He spent that afternoon as a convalescent who expected a dear visitor might have spent it, in a delicious vacancy, smiling now and then, as if in his sleep, and ever lifting drowsy and contented eyes to his alluring surroundings. He lay thus until darkness came, and with darkness the nocturnal noises of the old house. But if he waited for any specific happening, he waited in vain. He waited similarly in vain on the morrow, maintaining, though with less ease, the sensitized plate-like condition of his mind. Nothing occurred to give it an impression. Whatever it was which he so patiently wooed, it seemed to be both shy and exacting. Then on the third day he thought he understood. A look of gentle drollery and cunning came into his eyes, and he chuckled. Oh, 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 oh. "'Well, if the wind sits in that quarter, we must see what there is to be done. What is there now?' "'No, I won't send for Elsie. We don't need a wheel to break the butterfly on. We won't go to those lengths, my butterfly.' 
He was standing, musing, thumbing his lean jaw, looking aslant. Suddenly he crossed to his hall, took down his hat, and went out. My lady is coquettish, is she? Well, we'll see what a little neglect will do, he chuckled as he went down the stairs. He sought a railway station, got into a train, and spent the rest of the day in the country. Oh, yes. Oleron thought he was the man to deal with fair ones who beckoned, and invited, and then took refuge in shyness and hanging back. He did not return until after eleven that night. "'Now, my fair beckoner,' he murmured as he walked along the alley and felt in his pocket for his keys. Inside his flat he was perfectly composed, perfectly deliberate, exceedingly careful not to give himself away.' As if to intimate that he intended to retire immediately, he lighted only a single candle, and as he set out with it on his nightly round, he affected to yawn. He went first into his kitchen. There was a full moon, and a lozenge of moonlight, almost peacock-blue by contrast with his candle-frame, lay on the floor. The window was uncurtained, and he could see the reflection of the candle, and faintly that of his own face as he moved about. The door of the powder-closet stood a little ajar, and he closed it before sitting down to remove his boots on the chair with the cushion made of the folded harp-bag. From the kitchen he passed to the bedroom. There another slant of blue moonlight cut the window-sill and lay across the pipes on the wall. He visited his seldom-used study and stood for a moment, gazing at the silvered roofs across the square. Then, walking straight through his sitting-room, his stockinged feet making no noise, he entered his bedroom and put the candle on the chest of drawers. His face all this time wore no expression save that of tiredness. He had never been wilier nor more alert. His small bedroom fireplace was opposite the chest of drawers on which the mirror stood, and his bed and the window occupied the remaining sides of the room. Oleron drew down his blind, took off his coat, and then stooped to get his slippers from under the bed. He could have given no reason for the conviction, but that the manifestation that for two days had been withheld was close at hand, he never for an instant doubted. Nor, though he could not form the faintest guess of the shape it might take, did he experience fear. Startling or surprising it might be, he was prepared for that, but that was all. His scales of sensation had become depressed. His hand moved this way and that under the bed in search of his slippers. But for all his caution and method and preparedness, his heart all at once gave a leap and a pause that was almost horrid. His hand had found the slippers, but he was still on his knees. Save for this circumstance, he would have fallen. The bed was a low one. The groping for the slippers accounted for the turn of his head to one side, and he was careful to keep the attitude until he had partly recovered his self-possession. When at presently he rose, there was a drop of blood on his lower lip where he had caught at it with his teeth, and his watch had jerked out of the pocket of his waistcoat and was dangling at the end of its short leather guard. Then, before the watch had ceased its little oscillation, he was himself again. In the middle of his mantelpiece there stood a picture— a portrait of his grandmother. He placed it himself before this picture so he could see it in the glass of the steady flame of the candle that burned behind him on the chest of drawers. 
He could see also in the picture glass the little glancings of light from the bevels and facets of the objects about the mirror and candle. But he could see more. These twinklings and reflections and re-reflections did not change their position, but there was one gleam that had motion. It was fainter than the rest, and it moved up and down through the air. It was the reflection of the candle on Oleron's black vulcanite comb, and each of its downward movements was accompanied by a silky and crackling rustle. Oleron, watching what went on in the glass of his grandmother's portrait, continued to play his part. He felt for his dangling watch and began slowly to wind it up. Then, for a moment, ceasing to watch, he began to empty his trousers' pockets and to place methodically in a little row on the mantelpiece the pennies and happenies he took from them. The sweeping, minutely electric noise filled the whole bedroom, and had Oleron altered his point of observation, he could have brought the dim gleam of the moving comb into position so that it would have almost outlined his grandmother's head. Any other head of which it might have been following, the outline was invisible. Oleron finished emptying the pockets, then under cover of another simulated yawn, not so much summoning his resolution as overmastered by an exorbitant curiosity, he swung suddenly round. That which was being combed was still not to be seen, but the comb did not stop. It had altered its angle a little, and it had moved a little to the left. It was passing in fairly regular sweeps from a point rather more than five feet from the ground, in a direction roughly vertical, to another point a few inches below the level of the chest of drawers. Oleron continued to act in admiration. He walked to his little washstand in the corner, poured out water, and began to wash his hands. He removed his waistcoat and continued his preparations for bed. The combing did not cease, and he stood for a moment in thought. Again his eyes twinkled. The next was very cunning. Hmm, I think I'll read for a quarter of an hour, he said aloud. He passed out of the room. He was away a couple of minutes. When he returned again, the room was suddenly quiet. He glanced at the chest of drawers. The comb lay still between the collar he had removed and a pair of gloves. Without hesitation, Oleron put out his hand and picked it up. It was an ordinary eighteen-penny comb, taken from a card in a chemist's shop, of a substance of a definite specific gravity, and no more capable of rebellion against the laws by which it existed than are the worlds that keep their orbits through the void. Oleron put it down again. Then he glanced at the bundle of papers he held in his hand. What he had gone to fetch had been the fifteen chapters of the original Romilly. Hmm he muttered, as he threw the manuscript into a chair. As I thought, she's just blindly, ragingly, murderously jealous. On the night after that, and on the following night, and for many nights and days, so many that he began to be uncertain about the count of them, Oleron, courting, cajoling, neglecting, threatening, beseeching, eaten out with unappeased curiosity and regardless that his life was becoming one consuming passion and desire, continued his search for the unknown conumerator of his abode. 10. 
As time went on, it came to pass that few except the postman mounted Oleron's stairs, and since men who do not write letters receive few, even the postman's tread became so infrequent that it was not heard more than once or twice a week. There came a letter from Oleron's publishers, asking when they might expect to receive the manuscript of his new book. He delayed for some days to answer it, and finally forgot it. A second letter came, which he also failed to answer. He received no third. The weather grew bright and warm. The privet bushes among the chopper-like notice-boards flowered, and in the street where Oleron did his shopping, the baskets of flower-women lined the curbs. Oleron purchased flowers daily. His room clamored for flowers, fresh and continually renewed, and Oleron did not stint its demands. Nevertheless, the necessity for going out to buy them began to irk him more and more, and it was with a greater and ever greater sense of relief that he returned home again. He began to be conscious that again his scale of sensation had suffered a subtle change, a change that was not restoration to its former capacity, but an extension and enlarging that once more included terror. It admitted it in an entirely new form. Luxo Orco, Tenebre Jovi. The name of this terror was agoraphobia. Oleron had begun to dread air and space, and the horror that might pounce upon the unguarded back. Presently he so contrived it that his food and flowers were delivered daily at his door. He rubbed his hands when he had hit upon this expedient. That was better. Now he could please himself whether he went out or not. Quickly he was confirmed in his choice. It became his pleasure to remain immured. But he was not happy. Or if he was, his happiness took an extraordinary turn. He fretted discontentedly, could sometimes have wept for mere weakness and misery, and yet he was dimly conscious that he would not have exchanged his sadness for all the noisy mirth of the world outside. And speaking of noise, noise, much noise, now caused him the acutest discomfort. It was hardly more to be endured than that newborn fear that kept him, on the increasingly rare occasions when he did go out, sidling close to walls and feeling friendly railings with his hand. He moved from room to room softly and in slippers, and sometimes stood for many seconds closing a door so gently that not a sound broke the stillness that was in itself a delight. Sunday now became an intolerable day for him, for since the coming of fine weather there had begun to assemble in the square under his windows each Sunday morning certain members of the sect to which the long-nosed Barrett adhered. These came with a great drum and large brass-bellied instruments, Men and women uplifted anguished voices, struggling with their God, and Barrett himself with upraised face and closed eyes and working brows prayed that the sound of his voice might penetrate the ears of all unbelievers, as it certainly did Oleron's. One day, in the middle of one of these rhapsodies, Oleron sprang to his blind and pulled it down, and heard as he did so his own name made the subject of a fresh torrent of outpouring, and sometimes, but not as expecting a reply, Oleron stood still and called softly. Once or twice he called, Romilly, and then waited. But more often his whispering did not take the shape of a name. There was one spot in particular of his abode that he began to haunt with increasing persistency. This was just within the opening of his bedroom door. 
He had discovered one day that by opening every door in his place, always excepting the outer one, which he only opened unwillingly, and by placing himself on this particular spot, he could actually see to a greater or less extent into each of his five rooms without changing his position. He could see the whole of his sitting-room, all of his bedroom except the part hidden by the open door, and glimpses of his kitchen, bathroom, and of his rarely used study. He was often in this place, breathless and with his finger on his lip. One day as he stood there, he suddenly found himself wondering whether this madly, of whom the vicar had spoken, had ever discovered the strategic importance of the bedroom entry. Light, moreover, now caused him greater disquietude than did darkness. Direct sunlight, of which, as the sun passed daily round the house, each of his rooms had now its share, was like a flame in his brain, and even diffused light was a dull and numbing ache. He began at successive hours of the day, one after another, to lower his crimson blinds. He made short and daring excursions in order to do this, but he was ever careful to leave his retreat open in case he should have sudden need of it. Presently this lowering of the blinds had become a daily methodical exercise, and his rooms, when he had been his round, had the blood-red half-light of a photographer's dark room. One day, as he drew down the blind of his little study and backed in good order out of the room again, he broke into a soft laugh. <laughs> that bilks Mr. Barrett, he said, and the baffling of Barrett continued to afford him mirth for an hour. But on another day soon after, he had a fright that left him trembling also for an hour. He had seized the cord to darken the window over the seat in which he had found the harp-bag, and was standing with his back well protected in the embrasure, when he thought he saw the tail of a black-and-white check skirt disappear round the corner of the house. He could not be sure. Had he run to the window of the other wall, which was blinded, the skirt must have already been passed, but he was almost sure that it was Elsie. He listened in an agony of suspense for her tread on the stairs but no tread came, and after three or four minutes he drew a long breath of relief. "'By Jove, but that would have compromised me horribly,' he muttered. And he continued to mutter from time to time, "'Horribly compromising. No woman would stand that. Not any kind of woman. Oh, compromising in the extreme!' Yet he was not happy." He could not have assigned the cause of the fits of quiet weeping which took him sometimes. They came and went like the fitful illumination of the clouds that traveled over the square. And perhaps, after all, if he was not happy, he was not unhappy. Before he could be unhappy, something must have been withdrawn, and nothing had yet been withdrawn for him, for nothing had been granted. He was waiting for that granting— in that flower-laden, frightfully enticing apartment of his, with the pith-white walls tinged and subdued by the crimson blinds to a blood-like gloom. He paid no heed to it that his stock of money was running perilously low, nor that he had ceased to work. Ceased to work? He had not ceased to work. They knew very little about it, who supposed that Oleron had ceased to work. He was in truth now only beginning to work. He was preparing such a work, such a work, 
such a mistress that was a making in the gestation of his art. Let him but get this period of probation and poignant waiting over, and men should see. How should men know her, this fair one of Oleron's, until Oleron himself knew her? Lovely, radiant creations are not thrown off like how-do-you-do's. The men to whom it is committed to father them must weep wretched tears as Oleron did, must swell with vain presumptuous hopes as Oleron did, must pursue as Oleron pursued the capricious, fair, mocking, slippery, easy spirit that ever eluding, ever sees to it that the chase does not slacken. Let Oleron but hunt this huntress a little longer. He would have her sparkling and panting in his arms yet. Oh, no, they were very far from the truth who supposed that Oleron had ceased to work. And if all else was falling away from Oleron, gladly he was letting it go. So do we all when our fair ones beckon. Quite at the beginning we wink and promise ourselves that we will put her ladyship through her paces, neglect her for a day, turn her own jealous wiles against her, flout and ignore her when she comes wheeling. Perhaps there lurks within us all the time a heartless sprite who is never fooled, but in the end all falls away. She beckons, beckons, and all goes. And so Oleron kept his strategic post within the frame of his bedroom door, and waited and watched and smiled with his finger on his lips. It was his duteous service, his worship, his troth-plighting, all that he had ever known of love. And when he found himself, as he now and then did, hating the dead man madly, and wishing that he had never lived, he felt that, too, was an acceptable service. But as he thus prepared himself, as it were, for a marriage, and moped and chafed more and more that the bride made no sign, he made a discovery that he ought to have made weeks before. It was through a thought of the dead madly that he made it. Since that night, when he had thought in his greenness that a little neglected study would bring the lovely beckoner to her knees, and had made use of her own jealousy to banish her, he had not set eyes on those fifteen discarded chapters of Romilly. He had thrown them back into the window-seat, forgotten their very existence, but his own jealousy of Madley put him in mind of hers of her jilted rival of flesh and blood, and he remembered them. Fool that he had been! Had he then expected his desire to manifest herself there, while still existed the evidence of his divided allegiance? What! and she, with a passion so fierce and centered that it had not hesitated at the destruction twice attempted of her rival, fool that he had been. But if that was all the pledge and sacrifice she required, she should have it. Ah, yes, and quickly. He took the manuscript from the window-seat and brought it to the fire. He kept his fire always burning now, the warmth brought out the last vestige of odor of the flowers with which his room was banked. He did not know what time it was. Long since he had allowed his clock to run down. It had seemed a foolish measurer of time in regard to the stupendous things that were happening to Oleron. 
but he knew it was late. He took the Romilly manuscript and knelt before the fire. But he had not finished removing the fastening that held the sheets together before he suddenly gave a start, turned his head over his shoulder, and listened intently. The sound he had heard had not been loud. It had been, indeed, no more than a tap, twice or thrice repeated, but it had filled Oleron with alarm. His face grew dark as it came again. He heard a voice outside on his landing. Paul! Paul! It was Elsie's voice. Paul, I know you're in. I want to see you. He cursed her under his breath, but kept perfectly still. He did not intend to admit her. Paul, you're in danger. I believe you're in danger. At least come to the door. Oleron smothered a low laugh. It somehow amused him that she, in such danger herself, should talk to him of danger. Well, if she was, serve her right. She knew, or said she knew, all about it. Paul! 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 He mimicked her under his breath. Oh, Paul, it's horrible! Horrible, was it? thought Oleron, then let her get away. I only want to help you, Paul. I didn't promise not to come if you needed me. He was impervious to the pitiful sob that interrupted the low cry. The devil take the woman. Should he shout to her to go away and not come back? No. Let her call and knock and sob. She had a gift for sobbing. She mustn't think her sobs would move him. They irritated him, so that he set his teeth and shook his fist at her. But that was all. Let her sob. Paul! Paul! With his teeth set hard, he dropped the first page of Romilly into the fire. Then he began to drop the rest in, sheet by sheet. For many minutes, the calling behind his door continued. Then suddenly it ceased. He heard the sound of her feet slowly descending the stairs. He listened for the noise of a fall or a cry or the crash of a piece of the handrail of the upper landing, but none of these things came. She was spared. Apparently her rival suffered her to crawl abject and beaten away. Oleron heard the passing of her steps under his window. Then she was gone. He dropped the last page into the fire, and then, with a low laugh, rose. He looked fondly round his room. Lucky to get away like that, he remarked. She wouldn't have got away if I'd have given her as much as a word or a look. What devils these women are. But no, I oughtn't to say that. One of them showed forbearance. Who showed forbearance? And what was forborn? Ah, Oleron knew. Contempt, no doubt, had been at the bottom of it. But that didn't matter. The pestering creature had been allowed to go unharmed. Yes, she was lucky. Oleron hoped she knew it. And now, now for his reward. Oleron crossed the room. All his doors were open. His eyes shone as he placed himself within that of his bedroom. Fool that he had been, not to think of destroying the manuscript sooner. How, in a houseful of shadows, should he know his own shadow? 
how in a houseful of noises distinguished the summons he felt to be at hand. Ah, trust him, he would know. The place was full of a jugglery of dim lights. The blind at his elbow allowed the light of a street lamp to struggle vaguely through, the glimpse of greeny-blue moonlight seen through the distant kitchen floor, the sulky glow of the fire under the black ashes of the burnt manuscript, the glimmering of the tulips and the moon-daisies and the narcissi in the bowls and jugs and jars. These did not so trick and bewilder his eyes that he would not know his own. It was he, not she, who had been delaying in the shadowy bridal. He hung his head for a moment in mute acknowledgment. Then he bent his eyes on the deceiving, puzzling gloom again. He would not have called her name had he known it. But now he would not ask her to share even a name with the other. His own face, within the frame of the door, glimmered white as the narcissi in the darkness. A shadow, light as fleece, seemed to take shape in the kitchen. The time had been when Oleron would have said that a cloud had passed over the unseen moon. The low illumination on the blind at his elbow grew dimmer. The time had been when Oleron would have concluded that the lamplighter going his rounds had turned low the flame of the lamp. The fire settled, letting down the black and charred papers— a flower fell from a bowl and lay indistinct upon the floor. All was still, and then a stray draft moved through the old house, passing before Oleron's face. Suddenly, inclining his head, he withdrew a little from the door jamb. The wandering draft caused the door to move a little on its hinges. Oleron trembled violently, stood for a moment longer, and then— putting his hand out to the knob, slowly drew the door to, sat down on the nearest chair and waited, as a man might await the calling of his name that should summon him to some weighty, high, and privy audience. 11. One knows not whether there can be human compassion for anemia of the soul. When the pitch of life is dropped, and the spirit is so put over and reversed, that that only is horrible which was before sweet and worldly and of the day, the human relation disappears. The sane soul turns appalled away, lest not merely itself but sanity should suffer. We are not gods. We cannot drive out devils. We must see selfishly to it that devils do not enter into ourselves." And this we must do, even though love so transfuse us that we may well deem our nature to be half-divine. We shall but speak of honor and duty in vain. The letter dropped within the dark door will lie unregarded, or, if regarded for a brief instant between two unspeakable lapses, left and forgotten again. The telegram will be undelivered, nor will the whistling messenger— wiselier guided than he knows to whistle, be conscious as he walks away of the drawn blind that is pushed aside an inch by a finger, and then fearfully replaced again. No, let the miserable wrestle with his own shadows. Let him, if indeed he be so mad, clip and strain and enfold and couch the succubus. 
but let him do so in a house into which not an air of heaven penetrates, nor a bright finger of the sun pierces the filthy twilight. The lost must remain lost. Humanity has other business to attend to. For the handwriting of the two letters that Oleron, stealing noiselessly one June day into his kitchen to rid his sitting-room of an armful of fetid and decaying flowers, has seen on the floor within his door, had had no more meaning for him than if it had belonged to some dim and far-away dream. And at the beating of the telegraph boy upon the door, within a few feet of the bed where he lay, he had gnashed his teeth and stopped his ears. He had pictured the lad standing there, just beyond his partition, among packets of provisions and bundles of dead and dying flowers, for his outer landing was littered with these. Oleron had feared to open his door to take them in. After a week the errand lads had reported there must be some mistake about the order, and had left no more. Inside, in the red twilight, the old flowers turned brown and fell and decayed where they lay. Gradually his power was draining away. The abomination fastened on Oleron's power. The steady sapping sometimes left him for many hours of prostration, gazing vacantly up at his red-tinged ceiling, idly suffering such fancies as came of themselves to have their way with him. Even the strongest of his memories had no more than a precarious hold upon his attention, sometimes a flitting half-memory of a novel to be written, a novel it was important that he should write, tantalized him for a space before vanishing again, and sometimes whole novels, perfect, splendid, established to endure, rose magically before him. And sometimes the memories were absurdly remote and trivial, of garrets he had inhabited and lodgings that had sheltered him, and so forth. Oleron had known a good deal about such things in his time, but all that was now past. He had at last found a place which he did not intend to leave until they fetched him out, a place that some might have thought a little on the green-sick side, that others might have considered to be a little too redolent of long-dead and morbid things for a living man to be mewed up in. But, ah, so irresistible, with such an authority of its own, with such an associate of its own, and a place of such delights— when once a man had ceased to struggle against its inexorable will. A novel? Somebody ought to write a novel about a place like that. There must be lots to write about in a place like that, if one could but get to the bottom of it. It had probably already been painted, by a man called Madley who had lived there. But Oleron had not known this Madley, had a strong feeling that he wouldn't have liked him, would rather he had lived somewhere else. Really couldn't stand the fellow. Hated him, madly, in fact. Aha! That was a joke. He seriously doubted whether the man had led the life he ought. Oleron was in two minds sometimes whether he wouldn't tell that long-nosed guardian of the public morals across the way about him. But probably he knew and had made his praying hullabaloos for him also. That was his line. Why, Oleron himself had had a dust-up with him about something or other. Some girl or other. Elsie Bengo. That was her name, he remembered. Oleron had moments of deep uneasiness about this Elsie Bengo. Or, rather, 
He was not so much uneasy about her as restless about the things she did. Chief of these was the way in which she persisted in thrusting herself into his thoughts, and whenever he was quick enough he sent her packing the moment she made her appearance there. The truth was that she was not merely a bore. She had always been that. It had now come to the pitch when her very presence in his fancy was inimical to the full enjoyment of certain experiences. She had no tact. Really ought to have known that people are not at home to the thoughts of everybody all the time. Ought in mere politeness to have allowed him certain seasons quite to himself, and was monstrously ignorant of things if she did not know, as she appeared not to know, that there were certain special hours when a man's veins ran with fire and daring and power, in which, well, in which he had a reasonable right to treat folk as he had treated that prying Barrett, to shut them out completely. But no, up she popped, the thought of her, and ruined all. Bright, towering fabrics, by the side of which even those perfect magical novels of which he dreamed were dun and gray, vanished utterly at her intrusion. It was as if a fog should suddenly quench some fair-beaming star, as if at the threshold of some golden portal prepared for Oleron a pit should suddenly gape, as if a bat-like shadow should turn the growing dawn to murk and darkness again. Therefore Oleron strove to stifle even the nascent thought of her. Nevertheless, there came an occasion on which this woman Bengo absolutely refused to be suppressed. Oleron could not have told exactly when this happened. He only knew by the glimmer of the street lamp on his blind that it was some time during the night, and that for some time she had not presented herself. He had no warning, none, of her coming. She just came, was there. Strive as he would, he could not shake off the thought of her, nor the image of her face. She haunted him. But for her to come at that moment of all moments, really it was past belief. How she could endure it, Oleron could not conceive, actually to look on, as it were, at the triumph of a rival. Good God, it was monstrous. Tact, reticence, he had never credited her with an overwhelming amount of either, but he had never attributed mere—oh, there was no word for it—monstrous, monstrous! Did she intend thenceforward, good God, to look on? Oleron felt the blood rush up to the roots of his hair with anger against her. Damnation, take her, he choked. But the next moment his heat and resentment had changed to a cold sweat of cowering fear. Panic-stricken, he strove to comprehend what he had done. For though he knew not what, he knew he had done something. Something fatal, irreparable, blasting. Anger he had felt, but not this blaze of ire that suddenly flooded the twilight of his consciousness with a white infernal light. That appalling flash was not his. But not his, that open rift of bright and searing hell. Not his. Not his. His had been the hand of a child preparing a puny blow. But what was this other horrific hand that was drawn back to strike in the same place? Had he set that in motion? Had he provided the spark, 
that had touched off the whole accumulated power of that formidable and relentless place? He did not know. He only knew that that poor igniting particle in himself was blown out, that, oh, impossible, a clinging kiss, how else to express it, had changed on his lips to a gnashing and a removal, and that for very pity of the awful odds he must cry out to her against whom he had lately raged to guard herself, guard herself, look out, he shrieked aloud. The revulsion was instant. As if a slow, cold billow had broken over him, he came to to find that he was lying in his bed, that the mist and horror that had for so long enwrapped him had departed, that he was Paul Oleron, and that he was sick, naked, helpless, and unutterably abandoned and alone. His faculties, though weak, answered at last to his calls upon them, and he knew that it must have been a hideous nightmare that had left him sweating and shaking thus. Yes, he was himself. Paul Oleron, a tired novelist, already past the summit of his best work and slipping downhill against the empty-handed from it all. He had struck short in his life's aim. He had tried too much, had overestimated his strength, and was a failure— a failure. It all came to him in the single word, enwrapped and complete. It needed no sequential thought. He was a failure. He had missed. And he had missed not one happiness, but two. He had missed the ease of this world, which men love. And he had missed also that other shining prize for which men forego ease, the snatching and holding and triumphant bearing up aloft of that which is the only justification of the mad adventurer who hazards the enterprise. And there was no second attempt. Fate has no morrow. Oleron's morrow must be to sit down to profitless, ill-done, unrequired work again. And so on the morrow after that— and the morrow after that, and as many morrows as there might be. He lay there, weakly yet sanely considering it, and since the whole attempt had failed, it was hardly worth while to consider whether a little might not be saved from the general wreck. No good would ever come of that half-finished novel. He had intended that it should appear in the autumn, was under contract that it should appear, no matter. It was better to pay forfeit to his publishers than to waste what days were left. He was spent. Age was not far off, and paths of wisdom and sadness were the properest for the remainder of the journey. If only he had chosen the wife, the child, the faithful friend at the fireside, and let them follow an igneous fatuous. That list. In the meantime, it began to puzzle him exceedingly that he should be so weak, that his room should smell so overpoweringly of vegetable matter, and that his hand, chancing to stray to his face in the darkness, should encounter a beard. Most extraordinary, he began to mutter to himself. Have I been ill? Am I ill now? 
And if so, why have they left me alone? Extraordinary. He thought he heard a sound from the kitchen or bathroom. He rose a little on his pillow and listened. Ah, so he was not alone then. It certainly would have been extraordinary if they had left him ill and alone. Alone? Oh, no. He would be looked after. He wouldn't be left ill to shift for himself. If everybody else had forsaken him, he could trust Elsie Bingo, the dearest chum he had for that, bless her faithful heart. But suddenly a short, stifled, spluttering cry rang sharply out. Paul! It came from the kitchen, and in the same moment it flashed upon Oleron, he knew not how, that two, three, five, he knew not how many minutes before, another sound, unmarked at the time, but suddenly transfixing his attention now, had striven to reach his intelligence. This sound had been the slight touch of metal on metal, just such a sound as Oleron made when he put his key into the lock. Hello? Who's there? He called sharply from his bed. He had no answer. He called again. Hello? Who's there? Who is it? This time he was sure he heard noises, soft and heavy in the kitchen. This is a queer thing altogether, he muttered. By Jove, I'm weak as a kitten, too. Hello there. Somebody called, didn't they? Elsie, is that you? And he began to knock with his hand on the wall at the side of his bed. Elsie? Elsie, you called, didn't you? Please come here, whoever it is. There was a sound as of a closing door, and then silence. Oleron began to get rather alarmed. It may be a nurse, he muttered. Elsie'd have to get me a nurse, of course. She'd sit with me as long as she could spare the time, brave lass, and she'd get a nurse for the rest. But it was awfully like her voice. Elsie, or whoever it is, I can't make this out at all. I must go see what's the matter. He put one leg out of bed. Feeling its feebleness, he reached with his hand for the additional support of the wall. But before putting out the other leg, he stopped and considered, picking at his new-found beard. He was suddenly wondering whether he dared go into the kitchen. It was such a frightfully long way. No man knew what horror might not leap and huddle on his shoulders if he went so far. When a man has an overmastering impulse to get back into bed, he ought to take heed of the warning and obey it. Besides, why should he go? What was there to go for? If it was that Bengo creature again, let her look after herself. Oleron was not going to have things cramp themselves on his defenseless back for the sake of such a spoil sport as she. If she was in, let her let herself out again, and the sooner the better for her. Oleron simply couldn't be bothered. He had his work to do. On the morrow, he must set about the writing of a novel with a heroine so winsome, capricious, adorable, jealous, wicked, beautiful, inflaming, and altogether evil, that men should stand amazed. She was coming over him now. He knew by the alteration of the very air of the room when she was near him, and that soft thrill of bliss that had begun to stir in him never came unless she was beckoning. 
beckoning. He let go the wall and fell back into bed again as, oh, unthinkable. The other half of that kiss that a gnash had interrupted was placed, how else convey it, on his lips, robbing him of very breath. Twelve. In the bright June sunlight, a crowd filled the square and looked up at the windows of the old house with the antique insurance marks in its walls of red brick and the agent's notice boards hanging like wooden choppers over the paling. Two constables stood at the broken gate of the narrow entrance alley, keeping folk back. The women kept to the outskirts of the throng, moving now and then, as if to see the drawn red blinds of the old house from a new angle, and talking in whispers. The children were in the houses, behind closed doors. A long-nosed man had a little group about him, and he was telling some story over and over again, and another man, little and fat and wide-eyed, sought to capture the long-nosed man's attention with some relation in which a key figured. And it was revealed to me that there'd been something that very afternoon, the long-nosed man was saying. I was standing there, where Constable Saunders is, or, rather, I was passing about my business when they came out. There was no deceiving me. Oh, no deceiving me. I saw her face. What was it like, Mr. Barrett? a man asked. Twas like hers whom our Lord said to, Woman doth any man accuse thee. White as paper, and no mistake. Don't tell me. "'And so I walks straight across to Mrs. Barrett, and Jane,' I says, "'this must stop, and stop at once. "'We are commanded to avoid evil,' I says, "'and it must come to an end now. "'Let him get help elsewhere.' "'And she says to me, "'John,' she says, "'it's four and sixpence a week,' them was her words. "'Jane,' I says, "'if it was forty-six thousand pounds, it should stop,' and from that day to this she hasn't set foot inside that gate. There was a short silence, then, Did Mrs. Barrett ever see anything like? Somebody vaguely inquired. Barrett turned austerely on the speaker. What Mrs. Barrett saw, and Mrs. Barrett didn't see, shall not pass these lips, even as it is written, "'Keep thy tongue from speaking evil,' he said. "'Another man spoke. "'He was pretty near canned up in the wagon and horses that night, "'weren't he, Jim?' "'Yeah, he hadn't half-copped it. "'Not standing treat much, neither. "'He was in the bar all on his own. "'So he was. We talked about it.' "'The fat, scared-eyed man made another attempt.' She got the key off me. She had the number of it. She come into my shop of a Tuesday evening. Nobody heeded him. Shut your heads, a heavy laborer commented gruffly. She hadn't been found yet. Here's the inspectors. We shall know more in a bit. Two inspectors had come up and were talking to the constables who guarded the gate. The little fat man ran eagerly forward, saying that she had bought the key of him. I remember the number, because it's of being three ones and three threes. One, 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 three, 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 he exclaimed excitedly. An inspector put him aside. Nobody's been in, 
he asked of one of the constables. No, sir. Then you, Brackley, come with us. You, Smith, keep the gate. There's a squad on the way. The two inspectors and the constable passed down the alley and entered the house. They mounted the wide, carved staircase. This don't look as if he'd been out much lately, one of the inspectors muttered, as he kicked aside a litter of dead leaves and paper that lay outside Oleron's door. I don't think we need knock. Break a pane, Brackley. The door had two glazed panels. There was a sound of shattered glass, and Brackley put his hand through the hole his elbow had made and drew back the latch. Fuh! choked one of the inspectors as they entered. Let's get some light and air in quick. It stinks like a hearse. The assembly out in the square saw the red blinds go up, and the windows of the old house flung open. That's better, said one of the inspectors, putting his head out of a window and drawing a deep breath. That seems to be the bedroom in there. Will you go in, Sims, while I go over the rest? They had drawn up the bedroom blind also, and the waxy, white, emaciated man on the bed had made a blinker of his hands against the torturing flood of brightness. Nor could he believe that his hearing was not playing tricks with him, for there were two policemen in his room, bending over him and asking where she was. He shook his head. This woman, Bengo, goes by the name of Miss Elsie Bingo. Do you hear? Where is she? No good. Brackley, get him up. Be careful with him. I'll just shove my head out the window, I think. The other inspector had been through all around study and had found nothing, and was now in the kitchen, kicking aside an ankle-deep mass of vegetable refuse that cumbered the floor. The kitchen window had no blind and was overshadowed by the blank end of the house across the alley. The kitchen appeared to be empty. But the inspector, kicking aside the dead flowers, noticed that a shuffling track that was not of his making had been swept to a cupboard in the corner. In the upper part of the door of the cupboard was a square panel that looked as if it slid on runners. The door itself was closed. The inspector advanced, put out his hand to the little knob and slid the hatch along its groove. Then he took an involuntary step back again, framed in the aperture and falling forward a little before it jammed again in its frame, was something that resembled a large, lumpy pudding, done up in a pudding bag of faded brownie-red frieze. "'Ah,' said the inspector. To close the hatch again, he would have had to thrust that pudding back with his hand, and somehow he did not quite like the idea of touching it. Instead, he turned to the handle of the cupboard itself. There was weight behind it, so much weight, that after opening the door three or four inches and peering inside, he had to put his shoulder to it in order to close it again. In closing it, he left sticking out, a few inches from the floor, a triangle of black and white check skirt. He went into the small hall. All right, he called. They had got Oleron into his clothes. He still used his hands as blinkers, and his brain was very confused, a number of things were happening that he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand the extraordinary mess of dead flowers there seemed to be everywhere. He couldn't understand why there should be police officers in his room. He couldn't understand why one of these should be sent for a four-wheeler and a stretcher. And he couldn't understand what heavy article they seemed to be moving about in the kitchen. His kitchen. "'What's the matter?' he muttered sleepily. 
Then he heard a murmur in the square and the stopping of a four-wheeler outside. A police officer was at his elbow again, and Oleron wondered why, when he whispered something to him, he should run off a string of words, something about, "'Used in evidence against you.' They had lifted him to his feet, and were assisting him toward the door. No, Oleron couldn't understand it at all. They got him down the stairs and along the alley. Oleron was aware of confused, angry shoutings. He gathered that a number of people wanted to lynch somebody or other. Then his attention became fixed on a little, fat, frightened-eyed man, who appeared to be making a statement that an officer was taking down in a notebook. "'I'd seen her with him. They was often together. She came into my shop and said it was for him. I thought it was all right. One, 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 three, 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 the number was,' the man was saying." The people seemed to be very angry. Many police were keeping them back, but one of the inspectors had a voice that Oleron thought quite kind and friendly. He was telling somebody to get somebody else into the cab before something or other was brought out, and Oleron noticed that a four-wheeler was drawn up at the gate. It appeared that it was himself who was to be put into it, and as they lifted him up, he saw that the inspector tried to stand between him and something that stood behind the cab, but was not quick enough to prevent Oleron from seeing that this something was a hooded stretcher. The angry voices sounded like a sea. Something hard, like a stone, hit the back of the cab, and the inspector followed Oleron in and stood with his back to the window nearer the side where the people were. The door they had put Oleron in at remained open, apparently till the other inspector should come and through the opening Oleron had a glimpse of the hatchet-like toilet-boards among the privet-trees. One of them said that the key was at number six. Suddenly the raging of voices was hushed. Along the entrance alley shuffling steps were heard, and the other inspector appeared at the cab door. "'Right away,' he said to the driver. He entered, fastened the door after him, and blocked up the second window with his back. Between the two inspectors Oleron slept peacefully. The cab moved down the square. The other vehicle went up the hill. The mortuary lay that way. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics and also from A Good Story is Hard to Find. Yay! <laughs> Where Scott and I talk sometimes. Hello, you bet. Sometimes, you guys have been a lot. I've, I've got like three or four episodes to catch up. Oh, cool. Well, we've been pretty regular. I had to I had to push one a week because of work related stuff. But um, man, I yeah, I've had a really busy year. I know I know I said that last year, and then I said that this year would be less busy, but it turned out not to be the case. That's, you say that's that the thing, time, Scott. But you it, it, you have had a busy year, so yeah, this has been kind of nutty. But, uh, Glad to have you back, and I think we're going to do another one excellent. soon with you, right? Yeah, next week we're going to finish up. Um, the oh, some fam- some famous book by Homer. The Odyssey. <laughs> Yay! I've been waiting for oh, that. Yeah, <laughs> and you guys are yep. going to do Beowulf later, maybe. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> that was the plan. I saw it in yep. the schedule, so I got it from the library, and I've got the the files waiting on my computer Fantastic. to know what you're going to read, I so I can listen to ahead. Okay. So let's yeah. do it, Jesse. All right, sounds good to me. Yep. Thumbs up. So, uh, and whoever else, yeah. Everybody who's hearing us now, of course, has heard the story that uh, Julie recorded for her podcast, and I've re-edited it into one big file. 
Thank you. Quite a long novella. Um, it's almost, you know, I would say short novel length. But yeah, it's 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 quite long, and I kind of am ambivalent about it. What do you guys think about the length versus the content? Length versus the content, meaning is it too long? Yeah, I think it's short? it's kind of meandery, you know, for the point. Well, I, I I I felt it was really well done. I am. You know, I, I it didn't even occur to me to think about. Oh, the really? Okay. I, yeah, it, it was just. You know, I really like this length generally. I do too. Because it usually takes me one or two sittings, and then I'm done, and I really like that. Um, if this had been a novel, I would probably have to say, yeah, it would, it would be stretched out thin. But I liked it. I thought it was uh, very well done. Well, and I've read it. Well, I've read it three times because I read it. Mm-hmm. Then I read it on the podcast and then I would listen to it to edit it. And then I just looked over it yesterday to get ready for today. And every time I was impressed with more of the little details that actually mattered to building the entire atmosphere. I, I, I think there so. are a lot of them and it, it does redeem itself. Of the more you do read it because the first time I went through it, I was like, what? I was like, Why does she what? want this? What? <laughs> and then I thought, what's going on with the ending? There's something weird there. So I, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll start it again. I started again. <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh, that's interesting. And then go along, go along. Oh, that, that's interesting. And it's like a bunch of things, you know, along the way. But I also felt like there was, there's something, the way it's told, it's, it's very old-fashioned, but also very, like, too modern in a way. How yeah. so? Well, the two modern parties, like the, the colloquial terms, are like it's almost like they're trying to be futuristic for the the time period. You know. Oh. Uh, yeah. What What year was it written? Uh, I didn't look that up. Nineteen eleven. Yeah. Nineteen ten. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, it does seem modern for having been written in nineteen ten. But you know, I mean, speaking of modern, you know what I thought of as I read this? What's that? I thought Stephen King. Really? You've oh yeah. Got a prota- you've got a protagonist yeah. that's a writer. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a ghost story. Um, he's got a relationship going on, which Stephen King does all the time. It's not only a ghost story, but it's about his relationship with this woman. The um, um, podcast I, I mentioned before the the uh, podcast actually recorded today <laughs> with you yeah. is mm-hmm. called the Forbidden Books Group Podcast. Uh, sorry, Forbidden Books Group presents Necronomicon Necronomipod. <laughs> So layer of the bookish worm. They talked about this story, and they say it it must have influenced Stephen King for The Shining. That's what I thought of. About yeah, no question. I mean, you know, but not not only that. But uh, what about have you uh, read Bag of Bones? No, I haven't. You know, no. Steve, Stephen King has writers that are you know he he uses writer protagonists all the time, and you know that is the the clearest connection. Right there, you know, some of the angst he had about um, writing. You know, in Bag of Bones, in Bag of Bones, he, uh, the, the the main character, his wife dies, and he's struggling with writing his next bestseller. So he goes to this cabin where his wife used to be, and there's ghostly happenings there. Um, but it, yeah, so it's really kind of a, it, it's something that, you know, it, Stephen King must have read, you know, you, you think that he must have read it, you know, it's certain, certainly possible that he did not, but 
Um, they say it's the most anthologized of Oliver Onion's stories, and having read a few more of them just very slowly over time, I can see why it's certainly the most complete, I think, although he has fascinating ideas in his other stories. I think you guys would enjoy them just to see the concepts this guy has come up with, because to me, the, I was looking at this going... You know, I also thought of uh, the, you know, The Shining, but then there was Shirley Jackson's, um, oh gosh, the, the one about the house. Yes, thank you. And I thought, is this the first story that's had the house itself be a protagonist? Hmm. Because yeah, I thought that was the thing that was getting me until about the third time through. I was still struggling with, as in The Turn of the Screw, which is what I mentioned to you, Jesse, um, originally, is it's not really nailed down necessarily. There's a lot, tons of it, ambivalence in this story. Yeah, as to who's doing what, and I kept flipping back and forth. Is it just that this guy's a, a, a very unreliable source for the story? Is it that the house is really doing something? I finally have plumped down as I always do in the turn of the screw with the ghost, but um, the whole way through, I still struggle. Well, I, I, I want to have it always, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to, I want to think that it's a completely naturalistic thing. And I also want to think it's a, it's a psychological problem. And I also want to think that it's a ghost <laughs> or okay. three or four different kinds of ghosts, you know? <laughs> yeah. And now that, that reminds me a lot of turn of the screw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ambivalent. And it, it, this this has, I think it is, it is a surprise ending. Um, I, I think it's all aiming at a surprise ending, mm-hmm. but an ambivalently surprise ending because you walk away with questions, right, um, and not answers. But and a surprisingly uh, concrete ending too, though compared yeah. to everything else that's gone on before, has been well. Then the the room was so welcoming and blah blah blah. And he thought he'd change his story, and then at the end, it's like no. Here are the hard facts. Yeah, we get some distance. Uh, yeah. From uh, you know, it, it quite closely ma- follows his point of view. So oftentimes you think the description is an external point of view, but actually it's just his take on it, like a writerly take mm-hmm. on the description of what's going on. So you know, he talks about his relationship to Elsie, or mm-hmm. his relationship to what's going on in in the noises and. You think, oh, that's the that's the writer's external view, but in many cases, it's not the writer; it's the character. Uh, but it looks like <laughs> it looks like a writer talking yeah. about his own self as the protagonist, and it is sort of messy in that way. Well, and then on the other hand, then he'll pull you into. That's why I suddenly, the more I read it, just because I was reading it for the podcast and everything, mm-hmm. the more I suddenly said. Wow, he did a good job because then he pulls you out, say, after he hears the noise and he runs out of the house terrified and he's in a bar and he's like, oh, that's it. I'm moving out. No way. But the more he starts to calm down and think about how he's going to explain it and how it will sound to other people, then he's like, well, I I can't tell him what. I heard a weird sound. Uh, My friend scratched her hand on a nail. They're not going to buy this. And I suddenly was really relating to it in terms of the only encounter that I could say I've had with a ghostly experience. And I was like, uh-huh. that's the problem. I'll I'll tell people. And the first person I told, luckily, was my sister, who, um, okay, I'll just say it. She can see ghosts, evidently. <laughs> I, felt, 
I found this out, right? I found this out only a few years ago (laughs) because she found out very young that that wasn't normal, so she wouldn't tell anyone, which I guess I shouldn't have mentioned it, but nobody knows who she is, so okay. That's okay. But the thing is, is I called her and I was like, this this happened, but I'm crazy. She's like, no, no, you're not crazy. And um, that made me feel better. But it's that same thing. You tell people, well, yeah, but I know it sounds weird. And that's the same thing he went through. So you're given that distance. Now, I don't think I would have gone where that guy went, which was, oh, really? I'll just challenge you because I'm smarter than you. So I think I think now is the time in the podcast where everybody tells their personal ghost story. So... (laughs) Uh, okay. Shall we start with Scott? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can start with me, but I don't have a personal ghost story. You've never um, had a the, the only the only thing that I came up with was you know when I, I looked up you know while I was l- browsing around the internet after reading this story, I found that there's a kind of a local legend thing, ghostly thing going on here in this town. There's a um, old monastery a couple of miles into the canyon uh, right next to the town, and I live in Logan, Utah, which is notoriously haunted. And uh, I haven't been up there yet, but I'm going to. <laughs> How notorious? <laughs> well, what, what apparently it is, it has to do, uh, it's actually, I say monastery, but it's a place where they would put nuns that are were having trouble, is what the description was. Oh. Yeah. Troublesome so, nuns. Troublesome nuns, yes. What did, so, did they see what these nuns do, or what the ghost does, or? No, I didn't uh, get that far. Okay, um, just people are found no, wandering, mindless, screaming in the snow, or something. Exactly okay. that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Okay. So that's the closest thing I have. I'm afraid I've never had a personal well, experience. Now you have to go up there and check it out. Yeah, I'm good in the bright daylight and uh, <laughs> well, you know it is interesting because you have to have you. I think you really have to have ghostly experiences at night. It's impossible really to have them during the day. They're usually called something else during the day. I think you know, like well, you a, think a that. freak out or or uh, some sort yeah. of you know transcendental uh, experience. Yeah, I guess or it's twilight. Be- twilight will work too. Yeah. Yeah. The famous stories of when you meet somebody who you later find out had passed away a long time ago. Uh, right. That's it happens it, in the daylight. No, that's a doppelganger, though. That's 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 got its mm-hmm. own classification. I thought a doppelganger was actually a real kind of a double, a not mm-hmm. but not a ghost. Uh, okay. Well, I guess if it's somebody I don't know. who, yeah. Well, yeah, but I'm they don't usually you don't meet them in the street, though, right? I have no idea, so I realize I have no authority on which to speak. A doppelganger speak. is somebody who who looks like you, or you know someone else, and you mistake that person for them, and they're following you around and maybe gonna hunt you down and kill you and replace you. It's kind of oh, like old fat. I don't think I knew that part. It's a German thing. <laughs> <laughs> it also sounds kind of like an Irish fairy kind of thing too. Ah, a changeling in the cradle, huh? Maybe. maybe. Well, the changeling yeah. babies, it's, you know, that's a, a fate. But I, I think doppelgangers are sort of city of city phenomena. Oh, where you go to, okay. you go to a city like I don't know. You go to Munich and you're walking down the street and you see your old friend and you walk up to him and he doesn't recognize you and he he says, I, "That's not me." When you try and talk to him about the old times and and then 
uh, you go to the other city and you see your actual friend and he says, I have a doppelganger in that city. Ah. Oh. Or something like that. I've clearly missed out on a whole category of these stories. So Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. an okay. interesting subject. Um, yeah. Okay, so Julie, you, you've, got a, you've got a ghost story, right? Um, well, yeah, it was, I was, um, my, my father was sick. I was staying in this cheap hotel near where my parents lived. And the, the first room they put me in was right across from the ice machine, the elevator, the bright hall light. And I was like, this is not going to work. So, but it's packed for some reason. The entire town's full of people for various conventions and things. And so I go downstairs and they're like, well, we just have one room free. It's this queen size room down here. It's a handicapped room if you don't mind that. And I'm like, okay fine with me. I just figured they'd been holding it open in case some handicapped person showed up, but they popped me right in there. And um, so I didn't really think about it, but I was having, (laughs) and this is, this is the kind of thing where it just sounds stupid. But once I got in there, I suddenly was feeling like, I was like, you know, in case there's a fire or I had to get out in a hurry, I should keep my things packed up. If I had to grab them in the middle of the night, Hmm. And so I was actually doing that, and it was weird because I never worry about that kind of thing usually. And I'd be in the bathroom, and I'd think, I saw somebody over my shoulder. And I'd look in the mirror, and I'd go, oh, it's the edge of the TV next to the connecting door to the other room that's locked. That's fine. But it would happen over and over. Um, And then I – so these are just weird little things. I didn't even think about them. Um, At one point, though, I was – you know, like lifting the lid on the toilet. And I had this vivid um, scene pop into my mind of somebody holding my head in the toilet to drown me. Yikes. Ooh, wow. That was, <laughs> I was like, whoa, what has happened now? It's not a good hotel. I was, well, I didn't connect it with that. I was like, you know, my dad's sick. It's a very difficult situation all around. So I just, it was very stressful. And I just went, holy moly. And being me and Catholic, I started going, okay, guardian angel, if you could you know, like help with that, I would, you know, help me not have these weird thoughts pop into my head. But I was increasingly uneasy, but I just didn't think about it, which to me is kind of the proof of it being the most real thing. So I was having increasingly bad dreams and trouble sleeping. Well, not a big deal. And then one day I come in in the evening and I find that where the maid would have normally cleared stuff away, there's like her cleaning brush and the toilet paper that she was going to replace things with. All this stuff is sitting in the bathroom, just sitting there. Hmm. And I thought, she's hiding in the shower (laughs) near the, you're kind of between the shower and the, the sink. And I thought, well, I guess there was a fire drill because it's like somebody just (laughs) left. I said, maybe she got a phone call. Maybe there was a fire drill. So see, I'm still not thinking about anything. And then the last night I'm there, I have all these dreams, but it's the same dream that I woke up from repeatedly. It was always that I was in my bed asleep in that hotel and somebody was sneaking in from the room next door and they, this really bothered me even, um, they were going to rape me and kill me. And about the fifth time I woke up from the dream, I was like, this is nuts. Okay, so I turn on the light. It's about four in the morning. I'm like, I'm not going back to sleep. I'm. It was uh, Ash Wednesday in land. I'm like, I'm going to sit here and read my little prayer book I have for that. And I didn't think to ask anybody because I just felt stupid at that point. Um, but then when I thought about it later, I went, why was that stuff just sitting there? Why was it that that morning I was felt like I couldn't take a shower? I had to leave the shower open kind of so I could see everything. 
And I was just really rattled. And so that was when on the way home, I just felt like a fool, but I was so upset. And so I called my sister who, as I said, she was like, no, when you have encountered evil, it rattles you. And then she said, and don't be surprised if you have these increasingly bad thoughts for a few days because it, it keeps trying for a while. And that actually kind of happened to me for a couple of days when I got home. So um, I never was able to find anything. I kind of looked online to see if I could find anything that had happened in that room. But I felt as if they should so, you know, burn the room down <laughs> and so it the fault because no one should stay in that room. Wow. Oh, wow. It was yeah. weird. It was just, you know, but it's all this stuff that no one can prove anything. It's, I almost feel happy that the, the maid, I assume, was now scared and left and left all that stuff sitting there because that's very atypical. Hmm. Um, that because I looked back and went, oh, and my sister's like, you said all that stuff. Do you think she just for a fire drill, she wouldn't just pick it up later? Nobody came back for it. And I went, oh, yeah, quit a job. I'm out of here. I'm not yeah. cleaning this bathroom. <laughs> or someone else is going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's Gentle flowers waters. all over the floor, like up to your ankles. <laughs> so that's it there you yeah. go wow. wow you know I, 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 it strikes me that it's not really a ghost it's a premonition of, a, of something like some, it, the place is haunted I felt like it was left behind from something that happened something you, bad that happened you caught sort of um, you know uh, things in the mirror you saw you know in a reflection in the toilet right so it's like it's it's haunted but it's more like the lady brushing her hair than it is like a actual ooh spooky like the right. figure it, yeah and the dreams and everything um well yeah. and i have found that when i think about it that's why maybe i related to this story so much because it was like the shining or the haunting of hill house or this story where it's the room itself that either carries this impression or there's something evil that's left. Some evil thing is left there. It's just kind of like, this is what I can do because I assume that person was scared away by something. I don't know. It's, uh, that, that's what I'm clinging to, man. Otherwise I was done. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting. You know, like in the eighties, there was a movie and I guess it was based on the book. Scott would know, I guess uh, Stephen King had a haunted car. What was that one? Christine. 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 Okay. So, Christine, I always thought, oh, it's only from the 50s. How haunted can it be? I mean, <laughs> two <Yeah>. owners? <laughs> yeah. Um, it can't be that haunted. But the way the, the way he did that one is, you know, it, it can uncrumple itself, I think. Mm-hmm. It kills the passengers, and then it uncrumples itself. And Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. But really, there are no... They're all either haunted ships, like there's a ship at sea that is a ghost, or it's a yeah. house, and that's it. You could have like a haunted moor, but you don't have like a haunted beach usually. <laughs> oh, yeah. true. Although it, the upper berth, that story, it, that's a haunted room that they've now bolted shut at the end of the story. It, it, indeed. Or the it's upper it's an old house yeah. in the story. And uh, it just struck me that now at this point where we have cars that are going to be 100 years old very shortly, you know, still on the road, that mm. possible to, you know, during World War II they had gremlins, right? They mm-hmm. mechanical problems with air, aircraft, and they say, ah, it's the gremlins again. Um, <laughs> not the Germans shooting the wings or <laughs> the engines falling off, but no. It's Never. Just, you know, 
little problems in the in the mechanical system, uh, and that came. I think Gremlins came with with the idea of me- mechanisms being haunted by problems, um, and houses are naturally haunted. But we don't normally think of catacombs or caves as being haunted. We just think of them as spooky, right? So there's mm-hmm. something interesting about the the word haunt means like to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I haunt yeah. the neighborhood, right? The house yeah. is haunted, uh, that sort of thing. But I've had a, I, I had one ghostly experience, and it was when I was a kid. On the weekends, my favorite thing to do was to go hiking. Um, and the problem with hiking is uh, you can only go so far in a day before you have to turn back before you, you know, lose the light and can't find your way home. So my plan was we're going to get up really early so that we can get out and up when the light is just hitting, you know, the ground. Uh, oh. And we can go up much farther than we normally do because every time we would hike, uh, me and my friends would hike on the weekends, we would go up to a certain point on the mountain and, you know, it's like quite high and there's a lake up there and we'd heard that there's other things up there but we don't have four by fours we don't have motorcycles so we can't get past a certain point before it's time to turn back so the plan was we get up really early we get up at four we go to the beginning of the trail and we start hiking we we can hike up the trail you know fairly safely uh because it's the the bottom of the trail so uh 4 a.m we get up uh we all meet on the corner uh, where the power lines start into the mountains, right? That's the path into the mountain. Yeah. And we get about, I don't know, 100 meters or so. And then I'm like, holy crap. And I stop in my tracks and I throw my arms out to the right and left and stop my friends. I say, do you see that? And they say, yeah. I, I say, what do you see? And one of my friends says, I see a guy a ski mask, and a machete. Huh? And my other friend says, holy crap, I see a guy with a big axe. And I said, I don't know what I see, but I don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I said, let's go back. And we all went back. We all went home, which wasn't that far away. Yeah. But uh, we turned back down the trail, um, you know, sort of backing away slowly, and uh, went home. Had to sleep. (laughs) I I called my friends. I said, hey, um, let's go see what that was. Um, So we went back up the trail and uh, to the spot where we had stopped. And ahead of us, there was a big rock, a big white rock. And it was a big, big white rock. So... It was a ghostly experience, and I didn't know what it was. I just couldn't believe there was a guy standing there, I guess. So what did you see? I don't know. But what I do know is it scared the crap out of me. Okay. And it probably wasn't a person, because what we were looking at was, you know, a shape. But they saw something scary. They each saw something scary. And I didn't, I don't think it had formed in my mind exactly what it was, other than a figure. It hadn't glommed onto anything. 
Right, and I thought it was interesting that one of them said, you know, it's a machete, and the other one says it's an axe. Well, those are the things we liked hanging out with. You know, you take your axe and you... Something threatening, yeah. Wow. Right, and so it was like, it's, it's like the patterns, you know, you look up at the ceiling and you can see faces, right? But at four o'clock in the morning and it's pitch dark, your senses are underpowered. They're, they're getting too little data. And so they're looking for patterns at a much higher rate than they would otherwise. So I, I was thinking, uh, you know, this is why ghost stories are always, you know, in the dark. You can't have, uh, there are very few exceptions where there's a, it's a true ghost. Except for my lady who ran out of the, she was cleaning during the day. I'm just saying. I, I think she was teleported out. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, I immediately came up with two very reasonable things, just like you did with your white rock. Yeah. Um, with Oh, she got a phone call and had to go out of the, you know, and now I'm thinking, why would she do that? She'd just open her cell phone up and talk. Mm-hmm. Or it was a fire drill. And, of course, she had to leave because I was just like, what are the two reasonable things? And I just moved on, you know. So uh, it was later I went back and went, I don't know if that's what it was based on my experience. Wow. So. I've had lots of spooky experiences, but usually it's because I'm trying to spook myself, you know. But, right. But in this case, it was like, uh, I don't know what that is. I didn't classify it as a ghost at the time, but it is to me the closest mm-hmm. ghost because it was, you know, a spooky figure in the dark. Uh, well, and I have a friend who's, who says that I don't think it's the house she lives in now. It was the last house that somebody was saying who was supposedly sensitive to that kind of thing. I suppose like my sister had said, there's something wrong with this one bedroom where one of the kids sleeps. And she said, you know, that was funny when she said that because she and her husband had always said, you know, there's something about that room. I just don't like staying in there by myself much. And I'm thinking, and you have one of the kids sleeping in there, but they have quite a lot of kids and it was a small house. And um, then I told that to my daughters, who both of whom had babysat for her. Mm-hmm. And I said it, and they went, each of them went, oh, my gosh, is it the room that so-and-so sleeps in? I hate that room. Mm-hmm. I, I never thought about it, but I just never wanted to go. When they would call me to give them a drink or something, I never wanted to go <laughs> down that hallway and into that room. And I said, well, did you feel that way about the other? No, I never. But they were like, I never put it together. I never thought about it. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too, when you were talking about, you know, things, haunt places being haunted that it's like a room or a, not a beach, though. Yeah. You're you know, just part of a trail, though. Yeah. Well, I don't uh, I don't think, you know, it was haunted as much as uh, we were seeing a ghost. Or, you know, well, well, yeah. well like I, I, if you Isn't walk, a place that's haunted, a place with a ghost. I think, you know, when you say, like, that room, that that's like a haunted room. Yeah, that's a part of, it's the house is haunted, but only one specific room. Right? Yeah. In, but the thing is, is I think, you know, I'm very naturalist. I look at the world in a very naturalistic way. So mm-hmm. when I say, you know, that room, there's something wrong with that room. Really, <laughs> if everybody's thinking there's wrong with it. But I don't know if it's, you know, it's got a mold that you, you can't uh, detect exactly, um, <laughs> you know, at the level of okay. um, consciousness. <laughs> No, I, I think I think that un- unconscious things tell us a hell of a lot, but they don't usually spell it out for you. You have to yeah. sort of interpret, and most of the time you just listen to it and you say, you know what? There's something about this guy that I don't trust him. Uh, it's because he's trying to sell you a bill of goods. He's you know yeah he's a cheater, but 
oftentimes it's difficult. You know, you hear an argument and you say, oh, that sounds reasonable, but there's something wrong with it. I can't put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. I can't counter, counter it immediately. It'll take me a while to figure out what's wrong with it exactly. Uh, you know, that, that was uh, St. Anselm's uh, ontological argument. It's like, that, that's pretty clever, but you've done something <laughs> tricky here. <laughs> it takes you a while to figure it out exactly. Well, um, just like that. Isn't that that there's the one side of our brain that doesn't communicate with actually language or logic, but that's the kind that's the part of your brain that's going, you know what? There's something very wrong. I can't tell you exactly what it is. I'm just telling you, listen. And then later on, maybe the other part of your brain figures it out. I watched an episode of House that talked all about that. So I'm pretty sure it was accurate. You guys. (laughs) (laughs) Either either that or you have lupus. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm pretty sure I don't. So that's the that's the. Thing they always diagnose when, <laughs> when they think oh, no, not okay. lupus. That's the go-to. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and then it isn't because they don't bleed out of their skin when they, yeah, exactly. Unless they also have some other disease. Yeah, 12 other diseases. Uh, so. yeah, that, but in this case, um, in the case of Oliver Onion's story, you know, he did have a preface to uh, not necessarily this story, but the book that I had read mm-hmm. it in originally yeah. called The Dead of Night, which was a collect. Oh. He had done a preface to a collection where he talked about the fact that he thought he said, well, you know, we always say ghosts are what you can see, but that's relying on the least reliable sometimes of your senses. Hmm. Kind of like you're saying, Jesse. And he goes, sometimes it's you've smelled something that a hmm. perfume that you wouldn't smell or you felt a touch or you thought you heard a voice. And he said, some people say ghosts are all around us all the time. And then he said, so it's got the conditions have to be right for us to sense them. And he said, so I like to look at the spot. What, how did he put it? It was so great between the ultraviolet and the, well, I marked it somewhere. But anyway, the in infrared, these places, <laughs> that's, infrared that's it. That's, that's said, visible light. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I like to look at the places between those places where You're relying on other things to show you that something else is going on. And he said, so it kind of has to creep up on you because Mm. you don't interpret it that way. And so it was really a beautiful introduction to read before I read that story, which kind of made me buy into all the little details a lot more. Maybe than you would without some of those, uh, because the the first one that struck me was the, the dripping from the tap. Yes, that was great, right? <laughs> it it was pretty impressive. Um, You're talking about the the dripping that kind of it it drip dripped out a certain beat, rhythm, yeah, a song, yeah, right? yeah, called the beckoning fair one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the land, not the landlady, but maybe it was the landlady, the yeah. lady from across the street. She comes over and says, "Hey, why were you humming that?" She says, "I was humming." Yeah, and. Yeah, you're you're humming the beckoning fair one. A really old song that nobody uh, knows. Is this a real is this a real song? Do you think? Oh, I don't know. Because I, I love the title. I uh, that's what sold me on this story. Mm-hmm. Julie, you said, "How about we title. do? How about we do the beckoning fair one?" And I said, "Okay, <laughs> just the title's <laughs> great, right?" Done. I was impressed you trusted me so much, and then I heard you didn't. You were kind of like, "Why did she pick this story?" And I'm like, "Oh no!" Oh no! I, it, it 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 builds on you. The story builds on you, and it does. So once you, un- I think you know, there's something to be done where you spoil things. You just tell everything, um, uh-huh. because then, like, if you tell me uh, turn into the screws a ghost story, I say, 
Oh, that's cool. How, how so? And you say, well, at the end, right? And you say, aha, uh-huh, interesting. It makes me want to read it. And when oh, I got okay. to the end of this story, I was like, I was sort of, what's going on? This is kind of long and so much detail and sort of repeating scenes. And then, what the hell? And that was the end. <laughs> and I was like, huh, what did I miss? Let's see. Well, because I'm looking here and I see, let me just, I'm afraid to click through on some of this stuff because I don't want them to start singing. <laughs> I guess I, I don't use this computer often enough to turn, have to turn the sound off. But it, way down it says, um, it's referring to somebody singing a song called The Beckoning Fair One, but he also kind of writes some of the words down. Of the song. The Sarah Bennett Quintet. The beckoning. Okay, let me. I'm just gonna take I bet, a chance. I bet it's other people who have um, who found this story and made their own version. See, that's what I was wondering. That's usually how it works. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering also, and I don't I'm think it's a way for me to fair, tell. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly. Uh, but uh, you, you get the sense that the, there's more than one pattern to the meaning of the title, don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that that water drop was impressive because he wasn't paying attention and then he'd just start to tap his finger and his thoughts would go off and he'd kind of jerk him back and then it would kind of just lull him in again. Um that was the obvious thing and when I reread the story I was noticing that from the minute he gets there and starts fixing it all up and Elsie comes in and she says, "Well, you're turning are you getting married? You've really fixed this up in a way you never fixed anything else up." So you then get the feeling that the room kind of cast a fascination over him because yeah. it was also the only place he could break into to see what it would be like to rent. Oh, a board gave way, and he went, oh, okay. He's, it's interesting because there's one way of looking at the, his actions as he's possessed, right? He's mm-hmm. being influenced by the house's actions. But on my second reading, one of the things that occurred to me is that he, he's suicidal, in fact, he talks about suicide a few times, um, and he is like trapping himself in a certain way into, you know, he's rejected someone who loves him. He's mm-hmm. rejected the idea of marriage, and, and he says he's never thought of it before, but actually the very, the very fact that he is the guy narrating the story, you know, from his yeah. own point of view... It's like he's unconscious of the things that he's conscious of, you know. Um, and yeah. and w- later on, when he, you know, he reaches up to his face and says, "Where did this beard come from?" <laughs> you well, know, I've had that experience a couple of times, but uh, generally it's stubble. Right? It's not yeah. like a full growth. <laughs> yeah, not like it's mm-hmm. in weeks. <laughs> yeah, and and that fact that he's he's uh, he sort of becomes uh, disassociated from his own body for periods of time. And does actions that he doesn't want to do. Like uh, later on, we've got the he he starts buying flowers incessant incessantly, right? Mm-hmm. Like first time, okay, that's weird. That's not a very it's guy a thing to room. do. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, but um, why do you buy flowers? Well, you give them to the one you love. Who's the one he loves? The beckoning fair one, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but there's an ulterior motive. <laughs> well, <laughs> all those flowers, I think. Well, the other, but the other thing was that um, I found it, I kept puzzling over the thing where he's heard the hairbrush and he's run away and then he comes back and he looks over at the bed and he goes, there was a hollow in it as if somebody had lain down. 
he hadn't laid down. He was pretty sure. Well, then later on, of course, you figure out he probably had. But at the time, you're just going, oh, my gosh, it's an actual ghost who is brushing her hair, Mm -hmm. which I also thought was very artful of the author. He just leaves you constantly questioning everything. Yep. Until that moment when um, he's, you know, because when he wake, kind of wakes up to himself and it says it was the old so-and-so and he's like, well, where's Elsie? She'd never let me be sick like this. Poor girl. She's so great. And then he'll kind of slide back in to that. Well, I get I'm going to say to the house's point of view, the the possessions point of view and that thing where he finally just falls back into that kiss. That's taking all the breath out of him. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's a house. that's a vampire. Even better. Yeah. Uh, So mm. Scott, what did you make of that? The, he reaches into the cupboard. He pulls out the cloth, the harp thing. Yeah. It's a harp cover. What did you make of that, Scott? Because I'm, yeah, I, I mean, that, I'm looking that, at that was perplexing. I'm looking at like all sorts of meanings to it. Because where's the harp, right? right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have, did you find anything in the name Oleron? Uh, Oleron, Oleron kind of names. Oh yeah, Oleron is a city in. Uh, it's an island in France. Uh, actually, a lot of the names are French. Uh, really? Uh, yes. Um, okay. The Miss Elsie Burgo Bow or someone. That's a Scottish name. Um, the the people across the street, I think, are French uh, French city, and mm-hmm. the hmm. uh, the Oleron is. I mean, it's a, such a strange name, right? It, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know yeah, how I mean, to say that, it. That I just... out at me, but I really didn't find anything. I was just curious. I was, and then what about the word Romilly? Yeah, that was kind of strange. Oh, uh, sorry, Romilly is a city in France. Yes, that's what it is. Okay, it's a small uh, city. So okay. Yeah, so he, makes, it, he took his names from there. Or? I think so. Yeah, he's he's giving it some. But I also wondered about that harp bag, except that yeah, that's so probably what Elsie was in right at the end. <laughs> yep, <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, I think so. I kind of thought. Yeah, that's interesting. And and where's the harp? And is it just kind of a a symbol? You know that the 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 house is somehow playing him like a harp or something. <laughs> like that? I was well, thinking um, it's it's the harp is it's angels. Right, it's like uh-huh. uh, the, you know, harps and angels that go together. Like amateur. they rarely carry them in bags, so that's, that's right. The that's right. But by putting uh, the bag over, which Elsie, is a huge mystery, where where are the bags for those harps? But by putting the bag over Elsie, he's uh-huh. turning her into a angel, maybe. I don't know. It's pretty. Wow. I don't know. I hadn't wouldn't have thought it. Well, see, I just kind of looked at that and thought the fact that it's the drops of water that are like a tune that pull him into the first overt sign of something really wrong. Mm -hmm. I just kind of thought maybe way, way back when this all started, the original person had played that song on the harp. I just kind of took that as it had to start somewhere and the house had all these old insurance uh, signs marked into the brick that meant it was from a certain time period. And so I just kind of went, Maybe this started with the original inhabitants. One of them would play that song, and that's where all the the song association came from, and as well as the haunting. Hmm. Um, but you're right; it's never spelled out. It's but people, but yeah. they'll pick it up and go, "What is this? I don't know." Oh, it's a heart. It does. It does give you the solid impression that the house has a past. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the purpose. Yeah. There, there are things that happened here before he got there. Yeah, but I mean that, that's a good thought that 
you know, yeah, it had to start somewhere. I wanted to um, I, I want to talk about the ending so that we can circle back and try and figure out what exactly happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he's lying in bed, and then the next chapter starts. Right, he's lying in yep. bed. He's, he can't get out of bed mm-hmm. or something. And the next chapter, the final chapter starts, and uh, there's people outside in the street, and they're grumpy. Uh, the police are there for a sort of indeterminate reason, as far as I can see. I wondered if Bennett called them. Yeah, it's something. Was, had his Christian group outside praying for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's a new it's a new point of view, isn't it? Yes, it's very. Yeah. I mean, completely external, sort completely of. Completely new. Right. Yeah. Very external to yeah. the main character. Uh, although we do get inside his head again. Um, yeah. Paul, and it is all, almost cinematic in a way, especially uh, you know. It, yeah. It yeah. work in a movie to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're you're in the house with uh, Oleron, and then all of a sudden, next next chapter, you're zooming in on the house from outside, and there's a crowd of people out front. Right, and so they yeah. break into the house. They don't even bother trying to find the key, even though the sign specifically says it's available at number six. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, they go. They break a window and open the door, and then there's this wave of smell that comes out. And you remember. It's, <laughs> It smells yeah, like the, a, the vegetation. Funeral home, I think, is what they said. Okay. Uh, I think that's what was said. Yeah, no, I was looking, but... Yeah, like rotting vegetation or something. Um, All those flowers and things. Yeah, well, that, it took me a while to figure out that, that that's what it was. Uh, <laughs> I'm not super swift, <laughs> I, I must tell you. I guess because when they said the delivery boys gradually stopped bringing stuff, but they never took anything away. So there's all these flowers and things and all the food that they would have left for him. Because he, he had gradually become a shut-in, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's shutting so, uh, himself away. That's, that's, yeah. that's becoming clear. I know she when um, Elsie comes to him the first or the second or the third time, right, she's saying, you know, you're never going to finish your, your novel here. And the explanation is weak, right? It's, uh, you just can't. It's, you can't do it here. I, don't ask me to explain why. It's just you, you, can't. You, you know, well, and then on the bus when they're, or the train or whatever it is, when they're te- I guess it's the bus when he's telling her goodbye. And she's like, we both know what's going on. Mm. Don't say it. Okay. And I'm like, no, say it. Say it. I want to know yeah, what you we, think. We want to know. <laughs> so let me read that last section here of chapter 12. I, I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't uh, chapter 16. Because <laughs> the book is, goes up to 15 chapters, right? And then it would have just have been a little bit more, um, I don't know, had that extra level, you know? The metal. Well, it's funny because to me, it's I, maybe it's what Scott was saying about the end in terms of it being cinematic. Everything had been kind of subtle and nuanced and you're wondering, and the end is very concrete, yeah, very blunt. Kind of still unclear as what's going on, right? We oh. know we know what we see, but yeah. what happened? How did it get okay. that way? We'll I, read it then. And let's... Yeah. So here's how it goes: In the bright June sunlight, a crowd filled the square and looked up at the windows of the old house with the antique insurance marks in its walls of red brick and the agent's notice boards hanging like wooden choppers over the paling. Now I, I'm still a little unclear as to what the choppers are. But this is almost yeah. identical to the description uh, at the beginning of what the house looks like. Uh-huh. Two constables stood at the broken gate of the narrow entrance alley, keeping folk back. The women kept out uh, to the outskirts of the throng, moving now and then as if to see the drawn red blinds of the old house from a new angle. And talking in whispers, the children were in the little houses behind 
uh, sorry, were in the houses behind closed doors. A long-nosed man with a little group about him, and he was telling some story over and over again, and another man, little and fat and wide-eyed, sought to capture the long-nosed man's audience with some relation in which a key figured. So, what is going on there? What, what scene uh, have we seen? <laughs> hmm. There's trouble somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there. It's like um, you know the if there was sirens, you know, at the time. Yeah. Uh huh. And flashing red lights off the top, and yeah, and that's probably why I called it cinematic because I've seen that scene sure. in countless yeah. movies. Yeah, well, this is the aftermath of whatever happened, and now the ambulance is arriving, and yeah, the revelation's yeah. coming. It's mm-hmm. June, and it's sunlight. So this is this is you know the harsh light of day has finally come. And it was April when he moved in, I guess. I never thought about it, wasn't it? Uh, it sounds about Yeah, so about three months, maybe two, three months. Go ahead, sorry. Um, so then they, there's a conversation as to, you know, how we're going to get in, and they go in, and then it's just, it's like very matter-of-fact as to what's happening, although there's still a little thing. Then there's this interesting thing. Uh, It says, two inspectors had come up and were talking to the constables who guarded the gate. The little fat man ran eagerly forward, saying that she had brought the key of him. I remember the number because it's it's been three three ones and three threes. One, 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 three, 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 he exclaimed excitedly. And I'm like, what the hell does this mean? What does this mean? Hmm. What is... uh, yeah, I, I, I saw that number, too, and I was like, hmm, yeah, what does that mean? Well, do you remember the description of the square at the beginning? It was like a triangle. Triangle, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I don't, three sides. Yeah, so it's three sides, it's one, it's three. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but it sounds like they've got, they can't find the key. Uh, but they've got the key. Well, I just thought he he was the one who'd given the testimony because um, Barrett says right before that, he says, and it was revealed to me. But what he actually then says is, we haven't seen her. We haven't seen Elsie Bingo went in there because he'd been watching. He was always keeping an eye on him and he'd left him an uh, Oleron a note before going, we know what you're doing with that woman in there. Well, of course, he was wrong and had a nasty mind, but... um, so he was keeping an eye on the place, and so when he was like, and she never came out again, you know, and so I was thinking, he was saying, she disappeared, and the little man is the one who said, she came and got the key for me. And that, and I, so I thought that was the address, um, mm. if I thought about it at all, or the number of the key, or something mm-hmm. like that. So, um, a little later, uh, just a little past that, it says, uh, here's the paragraphs where it starts to talk about him, uh, yeah. our main character, who is apparently lying in bed looking like a waxen, you know, dying man. Uh, it says, um, the assembly out in the square saw the red blinds go up and the windows of the old house flung open. That's better, said one of the inspectors, putting his head out of a window and drawing mm-hmm. a deep breath. There seems to be a bedroom in there. Will you go in, Sims, while I go over the rest? They had drawn up the bedroom blind also, and the waxy, white, emaciated man, and I'm like, who's this, when I first read this? Emaciated man on the bed had made a blinker of his hands against the torturing flood of brightness. Nor could he believe that he was hearing, what he was hearing was not playing, uh, that his hearing was not playing tricks on him. For 
there were two policemen in his room, bending over him and asking where she was. He shook his head. And then there's a line of dialogue that's unattributed, but it's obviously coming from the cops. It says, This woman, Ben Gu, goes by the name of Miss Elsie Ben Gu. Do you hear? Where is she? No good. Brackney, get him up. Be careful. He's not answering, right? Like, that's right. what's going on. He's, he's like he's lying there almost comatose, right? Or in yeah. a super or some kind. Get him up. Be careful with him. I'll just shove my head out the window. I think <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. it's so bad <laughs> smelling in there, right? The other it's my turn. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then they get him out, and they see the. They get him into the, I guess the uh, police car or whatever police wagon. Yeah, they're putting some clothes on him and stuff. Or, yeah, they dress think, him up, but, take him out, yeah. put him in the wagon. And he sees something else, right? Well, the other inspector was looking through a different part. Is that what you're talking about? No, he sees the body of uh, Elsie, I think. Well, that's well, but not until oh, okay. But you, it's Benga- not clear that it's Elsie. Yeah. I think. Let me see if I can. Find yeah, it, it says the other inspector had been through Oleron's study and found nothing, and was now in the kitchen, kicking aside an ankle-deep mass of vegetable refuse that cumbered mm-hmm. the floor. And so then it's. Um, He's looking at that little door where um, Oleron had looked in and found wigs, wig stands and the harp bag and all that kind of thing, I think. And so he moves it along the groove and takes an involuntary step back. And it says, framed in the aperture and falling forward a little before it jammed again in its frame was something that resembled a large lumpy pudding done up in a pudding bag of faded brownie red freeze. And then, but then the sad thing, he's like, oh, I don't want to touch it, but I've got to shut the door. So he shuts the door and it says in closing it, he left sticking out a few inches from the floor, a triangle of black and white check skirt. And then I was like, <laughs> I was crying for poor Elsie. Yeah. That's interesting. The triangle again. Mm. Oh, hey, yeah. I found, There's I found, a few triangles I, in this story. Yeah. <laughs> I found something interesting. <laughs> yeah. I typed, I Googled 111333 oh. and I come up with, uh, Numerology and Freemasonry. Uh-huh. Oh. It says here the numbers uh, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, 13, and 33, and all multiples of them have esoteric meaning to the Brotherhood of Freemasons. Hi. Okay. Okay. I don't, it doesn't say exactly what On they the mean. On the sign in the level. But, it's, <laughs> but that's, that's a curious, it would be a... It, it, kind of an amazing coincidence if that wasn't connected somehow. It, there, there are a few. Tri- I think if you just do a search of triangles, you'll you'll see triangular a few times mm-hmm. in the story. Um, tri- triangles are interesting in at least a couple of ways symbolically. One is uh, they're pyramids, right? It's a mm-hmm. it's a pyramid, and a pyramid is a tomb. Um, but also, who has a square that's a triangle? Right. Well, that's what when because when he does it, it's, isn't it like the squares in um, quote marks or something? The square because I was yeah. listening to yeah, my yeah. reading mm-hmm. of it <laughs> when you put it up. I was like, oh, how did this sound anyway? Again, let me listen because I I enjoyed the way I read it, so I was oh, listening I, I again. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I wasn't fishing, but I was just like you know the part, especially the part at the end where he falls back on the bed, and I'm like, I was really getting into it at that point, obviously, mm-hmm. but. Um, I was listening, and I went, the way I said square, and I went, oh, because it's a triangle. And then, of course, what I thought of was the triangle between the house, Oleron, and Elsie Bingo. Mm, interesting, yeah. Or um, there's the, the what, yeah, they, I can think of happened? all kinds of. What happened? How did she end up in the closet? 
Well, don't you, I mean, of course, we know that he already, he was like, was that me? Yeah. Was that, you know, earlier he had said, was it my weak hand that suddenly was animated with a flash of something much stronger from outside of me? Do you remember that part? I do. Yeah. And I was, I, I remember reading that and going, oh, crap. So it's, <laughs> but he, he became possessed and killed Elsie and shoved her in the closet and then covered up the smell by buying flowers every day. Well, no, that was after the flowers were already, that was way past that. But how did she end up dead in the closet? <laughs> I think that was him, but he just... I think he did it, yeah. He, he never remember. remember. Yeah, because so either, either he him was or possessed. the house took him over, yeah. Yeah, either he was possessed and did it, or he did it and he's nuts throughout the whole story. Right. He's going nuts, yeah. Which is much yeah. like the turn of the screw. It's an unreliable exactly. narrator. I think I said that exact yeah. same sentence yeah. in the turn of the screw. <laughs> yeah, that you During have that to. Podcast. Yeah. yeah, you get to decide. And the more and the more slowly you read it, since I was doing it very slowly when I did the podcast originally, that's why I just kept going back and forth. Was mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know, but it's clearly the author wrote it to be a ghost story. It's in with a lot of other ghost stories, but a lot of those ghost stories are similar. Or they're from points of view that you don't expect. Really interesting. But not not like this story. I mean, I see why this, so far, of the ones I've read, is his most famous. It, 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 like, there's lots of things in the story that are making you think, ooh, spooky. Like, you know, the, the toilet boards, they don't take them down. Mm-hmm. No. Right? Uh, yeah, and that's an interesting. And there, That's really interesting. There's three of them, right? Yeah. There's, it actually says three or four, but why do you have like multiple signs on there? It's almost like, oh, that one's getting a little faded. Let's put on another one instead of <laughs> taking off the old one. I know. But also, there's insurance marks. That was kind of strange. You know, I was like, what are insurance? Are they implying in some way that he was like was never it? really officially there? As in, you know, maybe he never did let the place. Maybe he just went in there. It's it's interesting. And uh, well, Barrett though says his wife was like, "No, don't interfere. That's four and six a month. We need the money." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. So there's that's true. So that that yeah. But but there uh, there is a way I want to look at this story interestingly because I think there's you know another way of looking at what happened instead of that he killed him because there's a, we actually don't have any strong we don't have a scene where he admits I am choking you to death or anything like that. Yeah, he wouldn't even remember it, yeah. Right, so uh, if he were my client, Paul Orleron were my client and I was his lawyer, (laughs) and, you know, they take him to the police station, um, I would would say to the cops this. Well, my client was living in the house, and that's true, and he has been suffering some mental problems. However... I have an alternative suspect for the murder of Elsie Goo. <laughs> uh, sorry, what is Bingo. it? Van Goo. Van Goo. All right, um, and that is the homeless tramp in the basement. There's a homeless <laughs> tramp in the basement that's occasionally there. And mm-hmm. prior to the prior to the accepting of the of the lease, he actually uh, noticed. Actually, right at the beginning of the story, um, it talks about how there are signs written by tramps in their code, their cryptic code. Oh, on, yeah. On the back, uh, in, the, in the alley. 
and on the basement window. And there's always, like, scurrying around in the house, right? There's a rat or a cat coming up from the basement, he says. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's dark. He, he only has candles. There's no electricity. So he's assuming it's a cat. And alternative theory of the crime is the homeless dude in the basement came up for a sandwich, found Elsie trying to clean up the place while, while her uh, would-be husband is lying in bed, um, I don't know, degenerating or whatever it is. And <laughs> there was a struggle. He shoved her in the closet. And uh, because my client was out of sorts, he, he was trying to cover up the smell. Uh, I, I would say, sir. A naturalistic interpretation. Read your own client's testimony right here. It was him or the house. Reasonable doubt. It's all I'm going for. I don't think this is a good. Uh, we're going to have to track down this homeless person. Uh, I think that's pretty much pushing the story, but you know. Um, yeah, well, why mention the tramp in the basement? That's that's exactly. interesting too. And why like, why mention you know like those cryptic marks? You've heard about these these hobo hobo language things. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. it's interesting. Cat meant a nice lady. Kind yeah, of thing. Don't, she'll you know, feed you. Yeah, don't push don't push the religious angle <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> uh, whatever whatever the codes mean, they they say you know this is what you'll find here. It's like yeah, helpful, mean helpful. guy, don't go near him. Watch out for the dog. Yeah, um, but it might be uh, watch out for the ghost in the uh, in the uh, in the closet, and uh, if if she ta- if if a woman becomes a possessed, put her in the closet and blame <laughs> on the, the tenant upstairs. Shut the door <laughs> and move on. That's They'll blame right. it on the house. Well, I was going to say I uh, was looking up this the insurance marks in the bricks. Mm-hmm. Because that's something that somebody brought up on Goodreads in a comment. Someone else said, well, no, that was a standard thing. And this is, um, it says, the use of fire marks began in London after the Great London Fire of 1666. Mm-hmm. And then it, it's it's from a New York fire museum. So it's talking about when it began in America. But it says the purpose of fire marks varied by insurance company and part of the country. The main reason for displaying a fire mark was to signal that a property was insured and to advertise for the insurance company. Right. So today they're collector's items. So the insurance marks would have just said basically that this is a really old house. Mm. Think how long this has been going on. Mm. And that and the wig stands that he, he found the couple of wig stands, remember? Yep. yep. Um, so it's like, holy moly. And the fact that, well, and also we're forgetting a little bit of testimony from the vicar which was that, it's weird, the guy before you was an artist. He Mm -hmm. painted, I think, and um, Uh he was found starved to death. No food in his stomach. Not that he couldn't have afforded it. There was food in the house. Hmm. But he was lying on his bed, starved to death. Yeah, and that piece of evidence suggests that maybe that guy was possessed and forgot to eat. Yeah, and right. remember, because then he gets once he, mm-hmm. then he's like, "Ooh, I'm going to lure it out," and I'm like, "You idiot!" Of course, but he um, he basically kind of becomes jealous of him too. It's like I'm not like, no, I'm better than that guy was. In in a, another way of reading this story, it's about why men have to get married. Um, <laughs> so houses don't eat them. No, <laughs> so they don't go and, insane. And take care of themselves. As, as men get older, um, they become less attentive to the uh, housekeeping duties and other such that normally uh, would not be so bothersome. But 
men sort of lose track of, you know, keeping things. I mean, we don't have a, I, I don't have a natural disposition to, you know, put doilies on, you know, things, <laughs> things dusted. That's not my disposition. My disposition. Yeah. It's, it's not exactly hoarder, but it's, you know, it's like, um, don't throw anything away because you might need it later. Uh, I, I'm just going to say right now that just yesterday morning, I looked at the, my husband and I, the way our house is set up, there's separate bathrooms for each of us coming off of our bedroom Mm -hmm. and i looked at the state of his shelves in his bathroom and said honey if something happens to me swear that you will get a housekeeper i do not want to see the whole house turning into this bathroom and you living in it exactly and he went he looked at it and went there's something probably something to be said for that so jesse you're right (laughs) um when when men get older they they do the same things that they did before but it becomes, you know, less attentive to the details because that's just it's just the way it happens. And his girl, his girl who wants to marry him, and there's a line. I mean, we can't trust everything in this because it is told from his point of view. But it says uh, she would have married him if he had just said anything, right? Well, that's yeah, that's telling Elsie's point of view. Well, it is, but uh, it, I mean, because so much of the story up right up to the end is actually from the author the yeah. writer's point of view yeah it, i mean it's a little bit on you know it's a double way of looking at it because yeah. he he says more than once uh, he had never considered marrying her and then later on when he says that but considering it now he wouldn't marry her <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, well also though let's, he what's the explanation one... did you hear the explanation for why he wouldn't marry her well, he never thought of it. Right? Oh, well, that was he was be- that was the house's jealousy taking over again, right? It was right after a moment when he'd been thinking kindly of her. Well, he also, but he also sees her as a certain thing, right? Uh, and I- I, this is interesting because it matches the title. He calls her, and it's a specific shout out to uh, Jonathan Swift. He calls her a broad big nagian, right? Her, her. Where is that? Yeah. Says her features are. Um, reddish, like overfed, overindulged color, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't say she's ugly or anything. Now, she says, oh, I'm fat, I'm fat, when she hurts herself on the stairs, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that that's just her way of uh, saying, it's okay that your house is falling down. I love you anyway. No. I, from a girl's point of view, because here's the, I'm just going to tell you how I saw Elsie, um, because at the beginning, what I had marked is she was an unattached journalist of 34, large, showy, fair as butter, pink as a dog rose, reminding one of a florist's picked specimen bloom and given to sudden and ample movements and moist and explosive utterances. And then it says that she liked to wear, you know, a lot of scarves and hats and vary her wardrobe and so I read that and I was like, oh, okay, so she's 34, she's a journalist, she's made it on her own, and she is not the style. She, you know, she's like a lot of us. She doesn't fit into what the style of beauty is. She's too large, she's too showy, she's too whatever. And so she's she's just like, I don't care. I'm just going to dress like this and whatever. But she then pink is a dog rose. Uh, like, a, like I thought that was like a dogwood tree. Yeah, yeah. but a dog. Coat. I mean, you don't put dog in the. <laughs> well, I think dog they, rose is a kind of a dog rose, my dear. That's I have like, to look it. I have to look it up. I think dog rose is just a type of a wild rose, but I that's agree, what I took it as. Why, why didn't you pick a nicer kind of name for the rose? You know, 
Um, <laughs> but well, that's the thing. So what you get is the idea that she's already kind of awkward and she's to me, it, she was awkward and she was just going to ignore it. And she was friends with Paul Oleron. And, um, so, and her style is very abrupt, you know, and, um, kind of loud. I, well, that was my interpretation of it, obviously. Yeah, she's, but, she's outgoing and, uh, yeah. Aware, she's kind of, and, but she's also sensitive. She knows this guy's in distress. Right, but underneath, yeah, underneath is all the stuff that is hard to communicate because that's kind of the facade that she has against everything. It's what she's had to do to be a journalist. It's what she's had to do hmm. to be friends with him and not go, I need you, I want you to marry me. I mean, that was my, as a girl, yep. that was yep. my, I knew exactly the type. And so later on when she's saying, I'm too fat, She's large and showy. She's worried about being fat. She's that's the kind of thing you say because yeah. the guy's supposed to go, no way. Mm-hmm. You're yeah, not. He doesn't say that. Even if you are, I know. Yeah, he doesn't deny. He doesn't deny it. But yeah. But that's why she's embarrassed because it could have happened because she's too big and all that kind of thing. And so it, it, I think I think yeah. no matter how fat you are, if you break the stairs, there's something wrong with the stairs. Well, <laughs> yes, mean, she's but, not a forklift. I but mean, she was all self conscious at that point. Indeed. You know. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a she she is it's a it's a story about how men need to get married. The author is like telling himself <laughs> as he's writing this. You know, here's the argument for marriage. I don't want to end up like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the previous tenant, he was unmarried, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's like you end up with a beard, not eating, uh, in a house full of rotting vegetable matter. Well, and it never occurred to him to marry her because he just never fell in love with her. And But at one point he does go, you know, really, that might have been the better choice anyway Absolutely. than winding up like this. And, you know, if, if you have a deep friendship like that anyhow, love can come. Oh, he, uh, it, sound, it sounded to me like in one way he was in love with her. I mean, he's, he, yeah. he, he argues with himself in in the bar, I think. he Maybe it was not in the bar, but sometimes when, when he's to... outside of the influence of the house, he does right. say something like, um, uh, you know, I spent every afternoon with her for 10 years or something like that. Yeah. And if that's not, mm-hmm. you know, deep abiding friendship, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so he didn't find her super romantic. Um, that is not the argument he's using for get, why to get married, right? It's, it's because men need women. And I guess in this case, this woman needed that man. But, uh, he's a writer. Mm-hmm. That, all this extra stuff, you know, that extra layer of being a writer makes it uh, more, you know, I think writers will like this story even more than than regular folks. Mm-hmm. I, I like it quite a bit, but um, I think if you're a writer, it, it can be read as a way of looking at a writer's block, right? I mean, he he's rejecting his story and can't move on. And he's yeah, which only happens when he moves in, though, because he was really writing like gangbusters before that. I mean, it always comes back to well, um, no. it, whether it's that having that those rooms changed the way he thought and kind of unbalanced him, or whether it was the house, you know, that being in those rooms had an effect on him. I'm going it might to the be house. that he chose to go to. I think that that's a good reading. Is is the house influenced him? But I think it took him down a path that he was already on. Because why do you go and you say, "Hey, I'm going to move into this old haunted house"? Oh, all those <laughs> choppers on the outside. Eh, 
no, it doesn't mean anything. The fact that there's no key to get in and anybody can wander in. There's a homeless dude in the basement and <laughs> there's cats and, and rats running around the house and, and there's a lady combing her hair randomly in the living room. Uh, mm-hmm. That's okay. I'll stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, that, that's a problem you know, with a lot of ghost stories, isn't it? You know, yeah. When you have this incredibly spooky thing that happens and yet the people stay put. They stay there, you know. But I think that's why I related to it, because, like, I told my story, and it's all this coincidence and how I felt. And at the time, I just went, oh, probably this. Oh, I see the TV. Oh, which all could be true, but it all depends on later on. I looked at it and went, this was incredibly creepy by the end of it. Hmm. But at the time, I just went, eh, because you're not looking for (laughs) it, you know. So you you escape, though, right? You escape, so... Uh, Damn straight, I did. Either that, or right now you're in an insane asylum surrounded by rubber walls, and you just think you're having this podcast. In which case, I'm having a great time either way. It's like community in that one where they were trying to um, tell them that Greendale never existed, and so it shows the oh, yeah. of them jumping up and down on the mattress, and if you know the show, you're thinking, right. oh, it's the trampoline episode. You know, very clever. <laughs> but they're having a great time together. <laughs> that's I like that. That's, that. that's okay. Wait, don't stop it, because I want to see what happens when I take their pen away. You know, just all these things. Sorry, you have to yeah. watch the show for today. <laughs> Yeah, that should be starting up again soon, shouldn't it? In a couple of weeks. Yay. Do you watch that, Jesse? Of course, yes. Okay. I, I thought you'd have to. Yeah, it's a good show. Being a clever fellow. And it doesn't have a laugh track. I'm I'm, I'm really yes. sick of laugh tracks. So I, Anything with a laugh track, I have a hard time watching. Mm-hmm. Only, only exception to that, um, I just watched the new uh, Red Dwarf. Uh, oh. It's almost old Red Dwarf, which is a really good thing. The new, I didn't even realize that. They make it, they're making more? Season 10. <laughs> I mean, it's really? taken them 20 years to make season 10. but I've never no watched it, so. Oh, you've never seen oh. Red Dwarf? Oh. Well, I think I tried a couple times. It was like, this is weird. So maybe yep. I'd have to start at the beginning. I was telling Mirko uh, that he had to watch it just because it is an excellent science fiction show. It is mm-hmm. all of, every plot is science fiction. Every single one. Time travel, cloning, mutation, uh, space travel, aliens. Okay, I'm writing it down, but with reservations. But it's a comedy. (laughs) Only because of you, Jesse, would I even write it down. It it so seriously. And it does have a laugh track, which is not good. Um, But it is incredibly funny. Well, (laughs) okay. And smart. I'll add it to my long list of TV shows that I should be watching. Which, by the way, the booth at the end, which you may have seen on Hulu. Have you seen it, Jesse? No, we don't get Hulu up here. You don't? No, it's unfortunate. It's not available. Oh, that is unfortunate. But it may be out on DVD or something. Of course, you might not want to ever rent it. I don't... But it's a five... It's a Hulu original programming, and it's five episodes per season. They just finished the second season. <laughs> and the premise... Have you heard of it? No, I'm looking it up now. I just heard of it a few weeks ago, and uh, we sat down and watched season one, and then season two finished, and we watched it. So we kind of treated it like a movie, which I think is probably the best way. Yeah, but, only um, five episodes a season, right? Yeah, five episodes, like 25 minutes long or something, 20 minutes long. But the premise is there's a guy who's sitting at the end of the diner booths, 
and you can go to him and say a code sentence and he'll say, oh, hello, Jesse, I've been expecting you, sit down. And you'll say, I want uh, Hulu to be shown in Canada. And he'll go, okay. And he'll open his black book and go, for that to happen, you must go on a five-day hike with no extra food. And you'll go, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. And he'll go, that's not my problem. That's what the book like says. the island or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> but the thing is, is it's not, it's not related usually to what you're doing. Hmm. Um, and he'll just, and he'll go, why? You're doing this. He's like, I'm not doing it. It's the book. Sometimes people are asked to do terrible things. And sometimes they do them. Hmm. Because what they want matters to them so much. Sometimes... What you'll see happening, because he says the only condition is you have to come back. Well, of course, you're in your five-day hike couldn't, but it's usually something like you have to find a shut-in man and get him to come outside his house. <laughs> and the person's like, how do I even find one? How would I get him outside? It's like, that's not my problem. If you want your father's restaurant to do better, that's what you have to do. Just go to the triangular end of town. Right. <laughs> go into the, the house and have the choppers. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, so what happens is they come back. He says the condition is you have to come back and report on your progress. And so sometimes he'll take notes. He'll ask questions. And occasionally what you'll see is a few people's paths will intertwine, not always in a way that you expect. But it's a very, very interesting concept of what will you do to get what you want and what happens and how does it change you? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. How does it change the other people around you? But it's all conducted just from interviews between this guy and somebody else. Hmm. And But when you think back on it, it's told so vividly that you think you remember this thing happening or that thing happening. It's a very well-done concept. It's got a lot of good buzz and for good reason because it's all those thought-provoking questions that we have about things. Hmm. So check it out. if you can find it uh, yeah, it on DVD like or something. On CTV in Canada. Oh, City oh, okay. TV. No. Okay. I'll check so they've picked it up. Mm-hmm. But um, I highly recommend it. We'll, we'll do. Mm-hmm. I will be forcing Scott to watch it at some point. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> we so what, are you, what are you guys doing on the next uh, uh, Good Story is Hard to Find? Ah. HP. We're going to talk HP Lovecraft. Right down your alley, Jesse. Yeah, what, yes. what stories? Mm-hmm. You, you were going to do three, you said? Um, no, we ended up doing Four. four? Um, Dagon? Let's see, what are they? Yeah, that's Dagon. A great story. The, the sta- Colorado Space. Oh, yeah. That's a good one, too. The Statement of uh, Randolph Carter. Of course. Mm-hmm. And? And? Oh, The Dunwich Horror. That's the Dunwich oh. Horror, yeah. Which is one of my favorites. Those are all good. And The Colors yeah. Out of Space. I forgot how much I loved it. till, And I chose it's that. Creepy. Um, it's a creepy one. Until I listened to it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, and uh, turns yeah, out sick. Will Duquette, when I quoted a line from Randolph Carter, mm-hmm. he um <laughs> he said, "Oh, I forgot that's out of copyright," and so he just sent me the statement of Randolph Carter, and so I it's uh, running as Len Yap on Forgotten Classics. Oh, nice! Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah, almost all Lovecraft is out of copyright. Mm-hmm. Very little yeah. isn't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh so, yes, it was the sentence. This to me was. So, so H.P. Lovecraft, shall I say that the voice was deep, mm. hollow, gelatinous, remote, unearthly, inhuman, disembodied? <laughs> I was like, who else can use so many adjectives and leave you just with amorphous horror? No one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
Um, yeah. You know, Greg Marguerite told me uh, the explanation for gelatinous. I was like, okay, I buy all the other ones. But gelatinous? He's like a jello? The voice was like a jello? <laughs> it's like it's. Tell what, what did Greg say? Uh, Greg said that it, it was probably, you know, a callback to uh, a story by Poe, um, uh, which is, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's a, it's a, a man at the point of death is hypnotized. Um, and I guess hypnotism, uh, it's the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, I think, is the name of it. And a man is hypnotized at the point of death, and they ask him questions. And uh, he's kept that way for months. And then they bring him out of it. And, of course, he turns into a big pile of jello. <laughs> Gel- <laughs> gelatinous mess. Oh, poor oh, Because he's been dead for so long, right? Uh, I kind of thought of it as a thick, sticky sound. Yeah. Like if you were talking through jello or gelatin, which yeah. is what they would have had at the yeah. time. Um, and so I just was like, oh, that, that's the worst word in there. Gelatinous. The podcast is making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I'm going to go uh, find a pudding in the cupboard. Jello pudding. I'm going to be a long time before I can eat pudding, especially some anything rose red water that pudding. Has to do with pudding. Yeah. <laughs> some dog rose water pudding. Ugh. Wow. But then we're going to talk about the sixth sense, which I know maybe yes. is not really your thing as much. Speaking but, of ghostly, uh, I, I like the. I like. The ending. <laughs> I liked the ending the first time. I thought, oh, that's clever. But mm-hmm. I thought it was way too slow. I was like, oh, get on with it. Why is this mm-hmm. boy standing around talking to this dude all the time? Let's get on with it. <laughs> and he's like, uh, the people I was with, um, I was with Steen and uh, his girlfriend. And his girlfriend fell asleep. Um, oh. <laughs> right near the end, and the end, everybody's like, "Ah!" And she's like, "Waking up, what's going on?" <laughs> and then uh, we are walking out of the movie, talking about it. Uh, of course, everybody was talking about that movie when when mm-hmm. you finished watching it, and uh, she she had her own interpretation <laughs> as to what happened. And I said, "But you haven't seen the ending." <laughs> so she said, "No, you're wrong." <laughs> I'm like, "You are asleep." <laughs> So she probably still to this day thinks I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I know what happened at the end of the I just and I'll say this again later, but I just remember because I rented it and watched it, and I knew the ending because you know that kind of thing doesn't stay secret that long. But uh, so I wasn't that scared. And so then Rose said, oh, shit, can I watch it, too? Because uh, my husband and other daughter were gone that weekend, and so. She watched it, and I watched it with her, and uh, we both went, oh, not that scary. But yet, for two weeks, I could not make myself get up in the dark to, like, you know, go to the bathroom and get a drink of water. I was too terrified to get out of bed, and she had to sleep with her closet light on. So there was something there that lingered. Yeah, I, I like I like what he's done. Uh, you know, uh, the signs, I, I saw that in the theater as well, and I thought, mm-hmm. I thought, um, it makes it was really good up until the point where I was like, "Really, that's water. Water skills aliens." Okay, I was like, <laughs> "Just he he's really good at setting up the you know the everything means something, and you know putting uh, was it Mel Gibson in that movie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mel yeah, Gibson yeah. is going down a certain path, and and you're like, "Oh, I I I, I like this. I'm I'm buying this." And then oh, it's aliens. It's like, no, <laughs> come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh. 
that was the movie where I, I said, Joaquin Phoenix, what an actor. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. Where I discovered him because I hadn't seen him in anything up to that point. And now I'll just, he's one of those actors I'd practically watch anything just to see him in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some actors so are addicted movies. Just... Yeah, there's that movie out now, The Master. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I don't know why they didn't just do just do it, like, based on the real story. I think that would have been more, much more interesting than... They, 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 they thought they didn't want to have their butt suit off, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... That's the reputation. I'd much rather see, uh, you know, a hist- I like hit biopics. I think it, that would have made a good biopic. Well, I think everybody's afraid of them. They've made, you know... Baron the- Munchausen's kind, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. sort of story... <laughs> Well, I listened to the Takeaway Movie Date, which I li- I like those guys, and um, they one I guess I can't remember her name now, but the woman was saying that she'd been talking to a reporter from the Village Voice, who's been investigating Scientology for twenty years or something, mm-hmm. and he said if you know L. Ron Hubbard's story, you watch that movie, and it's just like a scavenger hunt, thing after thing after thing. He's like, it's essentially it. It's just not saying it. Yeah. So down to the cigarettes he smokes, even. Mm. So. Wow. I do want to. Speaking of ghost stories, I thought I would just mention this book that is not on audio, but I, I'm sure a lot of the stories are available on audio. It's Otto Penzler's mm. The Big Book of Ghost Stories. Nice. Yeah, and I, I got it for myself as a reward for a freelance job I got, and I went, yay! I'm gonna spend some money and buy myself a book. And this is about 800 pages long. The type is not huge. It's a big book, but it's really well made. You know some of these books you get that you open them up and the binding cracks? You feel like this book, even though the paper's that cheaper paper, it's going to last a long time. It's got a great cover. This is a brand new book. Yeah, it just came out. And these, But these stories are great because they're a real combination of Old classics like The Monkey's Paw, which I hadn't just sat down and read for a long time. You've heard all these permutations oh, no. of them. You know, The Simpsons looms large in my mind. Mm-hmm. But They've done practically um, everything in their 25 seasons. Or yes, they have. But uh, it's also got some brand new stories in it. You know, oh, so there's oh. a nice, a really nice combination. He didn't just go with the old ones that you've seen a lot of times. Or he'll pick ones by people that you haven't heard of before. So I, would I like can't to find recommend. a list of uh, its table of contents yet, so maybe... Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's on... Oh, if it's here, on Kindle, it's, it's, on it's on a sample. Yeah, that's how I look at things like that a lot. I'll download I the think, sample. I think... Um, oh, yeah, so the way they classify it in here is by kind of story. So, a negative train of thought. Ha, ha, ha. Stop, <laughs> you're scaring me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I must be well, dreaming. A seance, you say. Classics... Female of the species, uh, beaten to a pulp, modern masters. Huh. Yeah, and it starts, actually, that's the second page. The first one has, but I'm not dead yet. I love forever, <laughs> or maybe not. This old house, kids will be kids. There's something funny around here, so there's some funny ones. But I have found that's kind of, it's a tell on the story. So what I've been doing is just flipping it open and reading the story, because I don't want to know the category. Uh, page 288. Hmm? Page 288 is Donald E. Westlake. I just, it just flipped mm. open to that for me. Nice. I was like, oh, it's the ghost of the paperback. <laughs> 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 it knows you want to read this page. 
I think that's uh, it. It was your guardian angel, Jesse, making it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Um, speaking of, uh, uh, Westlake, there's a new um, movie coming out based on uh, the Parker books called Parker, uh, uh. starring the guy from every action movie. What's it? What's his name? The bald guy with a British accent. Every action movie. Bald guy with a British no, accent. He's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the action movie star of, of today. He's in, like, The Transporter and... There's so many people like that, though. Uh, it's not Liam Neeson. Vin, Vin Diesel? Oh, damn it, my brain is working. <laughs> um, not Bruce Willis, because he's bald. No, but he's no, 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 no. Those, those guys are... You're, you're out of touch. You're out of, We're out of touch. Jason Statham. <laughs> Jason Statham. You don't know Jason Oh... I haven't seen one of his movies. Yeah, I would have uh, never guessed. Oh, okay. That. Well, he's he's like he's the he's the he's in stuff a lot. Yeah, expendable. Mm-hmm. So he's he's like the modern version of all those action movie stars from the eighties. Um, yeah, he, I've heard his, that. his first movie was Lock, Stock, and Two Two Smoking Barrels. Two Smoking Barrels. That's right. And Snatch. I've seen it. Um, which was sort of a fall. Oh, yep, mm-hmm. seen it. It's good. It's what fun. was it? Lock, Stock, and Two. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, he was in a good classic heist movie called, um, uh, what was it called? The Bank Job, <laughs> clearly. Uh, he was, he was the, he, the transporter movies are the ones he's known for. They were very popular. Which now we understand why. I, I've seen the second trans, no, not They're the, not great. They're not great. Are those the ones with Sheila Buff Venom? No, I don't think so. Transporter? Mm-hmm. Transformer. <laughs> I get mixed up. I thinking thinking of the Transformer movie, which was a great oh, fun. Yeah, no, no. Probably came out the same year. Yeah, we were in a hotel suite and somebody was sick, so they were lying in the bed, and the rest of us. So there were two TVs, and we were watching them on each TV, and like you know, throwing popcorn and quipping, cracking wise, and mm-hmm. it was quite fun. But you know, of course, I didn't pay any attention to it really. Well, I, I was just thinking it's it it's about time for another Westlake read along, and uh, mm. the one that I'm hoping to get um, Paul Westlake on for again is uh, a short novel called Anarchaos. He, he he's into that, and um, it's a Westlake novel written as Richard Stark. Oh no, sorry, as uh, Kurt Clark. It's science fiction set on a planet called uh, Anarchaos. <laughs> And apparently in this universe, every planet has its own uh, governmental system. So like, there's a communist planet and, <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know, free capitalism planet. And uh, the one that our main character goes to is one with no government. So of course. Anarchy. <laughs> um, when was it written? Uh, it's the 60s, like 60. Okay. So. That and sounds about right. I think it was an ace book. And... It was available as an audiobook, but I'm hoping to maybe we can get an audiobook out before um, before we do a, a read along because I think it'd be nice for everybody to be able to download and listen to that. It's, uh, I like when yeah, I really love that you're mm-hmm. you do that when you can. Well, uh, even if even if it's uh, on Audible, even if it's not a free release, it's still uh, nice to have it available as a yeah that people can get. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. books are hard to find. I don't know if you get. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, 
And it seems to me like I've tried to read one or two of his books, and I never have oh, really? wow. finished one. But possibly I've been picking the wrong books. I don't know. Uh, I I think you should go with a standalone. So he does a lot of series books, but mm-hmm. um, uh, there's one called Smoke. I did that one with Luke. That's a mm-hmm. retelling of the uh, of <laughs> the Invisible Man, sort of, except it's with a thief. Oh, I remember hearing you talk about that, I think. Yeah. Um, there's one called Humans, which you might like, Julie. That that one's kind okay. of a fantasy. Um, uh, God's going to end the end the world, uh, and he's mm-hmm. got a plan to do it. And it's sort of a very convoluted plan. Basically, he's going to make humans end the world for him. Uh, but it's his way. Yeah, <laughs> and so the way he does this is he he picks out like five or six people on the earth, sort of randomly, and has the angels go down and sort of influence them to do things. And one of them's like a survival, a survivor of Chernobyl. Another one's a fireman and they all sort of meet at a party and, and just try and edge the world towards, towards, uh, ending. Are you sure this is God or is this not his main adversary? I don't Uh, know. I guess that's why I'd have to read it, huh? Yeah. It's, 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 he's just a great writer. So when you read his, um, his his turn of phrase is all so wonderful. And well, then I've got these both written down. I'm going to look for them. And um, when you were talking about the humans idea, I just I'm a few pages away from finishing Firebird by Jack McDevitt. Mm-hmm. And I have been I have to I'll have to go into Goodreads and kind of change it. I'm like one more time in this series. I'm only reading it because Will Duquette said it was pretty good. He's doing the, you know, these two people, they're investigating a mystery and it's the same kind of a mystery. But I have to admit, it got really interesting because one of the major threads of story is that there's a planet where all the people died a long, long time ago. And the AIs, the, the artificial intelligences, which are in everything and in fact, will run your house and show up and talk to you if you want that kind of thing. They were left behind. And so after centuries, they're rather resentful of the fact that no one ever came back for them. <laughs> so if anybody lands there, wow. they, they're doing things like driving up going, I could take you to that church you want to look at. Look, I'm a comfortable car. Get in. Mm. <laughs> you wind up Christine. running away and spider bots are coming after you. <laughs> well, that's just one element of it. So, mm. um, it's, but it's very interesting because what happens is one of the characters becomes interested in the idea that these artificial intelligence, intelligences have moved way beyond being a program. Are they themselves actually alive? What is a soul? And so that becomes a point of controversy on the planet he's from because people start showing up either trying to save them or trying to take the archaeological goods or so it's uh Can you give communion to a to a a robot. Well, I guess that's one of the things that the various pastors are looking into. <laughs> Here put into your body the sacred bolt. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. Here's a couple of drops of lubricating oil. <laughs> so, um, anointing but, oil. Anointing yeah. lubricating oil. But I think the book, in in that sense, you it's kind of it's part of a series. But I think you can read it as a standalone if that's the kind of thing you're interested in reading. And it's um, you aren't necessarily left with the feeling that the author is going one way or the other. Because the thing I love about this series, I have to say, is He'll bring up religion or this kind of a concept 
and he never actually plumps down one way or the other. It's much like real life. I'm looking at Jack McDevitt, but he's written millions of books. Yeah, it's called Firebird. Firebird, okay, there it is. It's the last one in a series he writes about Alex Benedict and Chase Colpath, and they're all told from Chase Colpath's point of view. She's his Alex Benedict's pilot, but she's also kind of his partner in helping him run his business, and he is somebody who will go to uh, places like the pyramids, say, and take the things out and sell them to people. and But this series is set 9,000 years in the future. It's getting so. good reviews. Yeah, it's and as I say, I was kind of going, the last couple books, I was like, well, I'm going to keep going. But this one, I thought, again, with the person who disappeared into thin air. But it's it's he's redeemed it for me, I have to say. I have to give Will Duquette full marks. Hmm. Uh, it was really interesting, and, and in light of the kind of thing that we were talking about is how do you know what's real and what isn't real, they're doing a lot of weighing of that sort of thing. When is it worth stepping out and being courageous about something? When should you be prudent? Hmm. Um, in terms of the is, other of the story, Will, which I don't want to ruin, so for anybody who Will Duquette doing the um, Jeeves ones as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah he's good. Isn't he like, good? Yeah, I, I think he did a really good job. I, I mean, he should have a British accent, but it's set in the States mostly, right? So, yeah, I guess. It, well, I think he didn't want to do a bad British accent, so he just. But but he was just writing to me saying that he found a um, novel that's out of copyright, a Woodhouse novel, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, he was wondering if he could do it, and we could drop it into Forgotten Classics as an alternate, or um, we're trying to figure out, do we want to just put it up at the same time as this book, do it after this book that I'm doing, so, but... Drop it in. Yeah. Put it, put it in as a... Uh, you don't need to serialize everything, just drop it in as a big one. They're, they they take up a lot of bandwidth, but um, it's... I think it's people nice might find convenient. it intimidating, though. Maybe. We get good downloads for our uh, our novels. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've got them sitting there waiting for me, going six hours. I know I can stop any time, but... Yeah, mm. I mean, the thing is, is it doesn't no. make it... Most most podcasts are sort of timely, you know. Uh, they mm-hmm. they have to sort of be consumed within a certain period of time to to get the, uh, I don't know, the juice out of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but a novel, uh, you know, most people, even if you buy a novel right now, you, you're not necessarily going to read it that day. You're going to sit on it and, yeah, you know... And say, oh yeah. Yeah, I don't know. People, people have told me if something is over about an hour long, they find it intimidating. Uh, I, I um, totally agree. It, yeah, so that's why even if we just put it up, I might just put it up in one hour pieces or whatever. I don't know. We'll see. We're still talking about it. He just brought it up today, so that was another reason I was late. I was like, come on, Skype. Okay, Will, <laughs> here, here's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh but I thought yeah. that'll be fun. I like that other people are, you know, Joseph did got back to doing a Hans Christian Andersen, and now he's going to do an Oscar Wilde story that was written in response to mm. the Hans Christian Andersen story. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm. So it's nice to be able to listen to things from my feed that I didn't do. So I like it. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.